Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Shapiro getting checked by a child. That's awesome. Going to lead with that. Um, we have Tim Dillon, the comedian, absolutely roasting Jordan Peterson in a very entertaining way. Can't wait for that story. Um, CNN is, is leaning into prodding Spotify to crack down on Joe Rogan. Spotify has made uh, some sort of a reactive move that we'll talk about. And... Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Joe also came out, and I just watched this right before coming on air. He released a video of his own uh, talking about the whole controversy around his podcast. The um, There was a train wreck Fox News interview with an anti-work activist, so we'll talk about that. Trump is out there uh, leaning hard into authoritarianism. Um, I mean, basically now admitting that he has all of the most radical fringe views basically in line with the MyPillow guy and the people who were telling him to literally do a coup in the 2020 election. And uh, I got a lot more, too. So uh, real substantive stuff later on, corporations and their fake pay rates. 
I'll tell you about that, that scam and how that works. People serving a life for weed uh, beg Biden for mercy. And um, a, a poll on the Ukraine-Russia situation, what the American, American people think, uh, psychotic mayors banning books, like quite literally, just the most brazen violation of the First Amendment that you could ever imagine. So without further ado, let's get started, and we're going to kick it off with Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro uh, recorded this segment where, I don't know if this is for his Daily Wire show or whatever, but he went and sat down with a bunch of, I don't know how old these kids are, maybe kindergarten age, I would guess, or maybe a a little bit older than that. Um, He sits down with these kids, and he is going to teach them politics. I mean, that's hilarious. He is not a trustworthy source. He's obviously uh, a very partisan person. He's very tribal. He's a hardcore Republican. And um, he thinks that he doesn't have biases. He thinks that he's somehow objective, even though it's demonstrably the case that, of course, he's biased in that direction. Um, He's going to get checked here by a child. A child is going to check him. So this is fun. This is interesting. Let's watch, and then I'll respond to a lot of the things that he says. Government is what takes all of your money and gives you very little in return. That is not true. Okay, that, that's kind of, I mean, it's kind of true. It depends on the kind of government. Yeah, that, that is what taxes are for, but, but taxes are theft, children. Taxes are the government takes a part of the money that you spend or the money that you earn or the property value of your house. Mostly, yes. I mean, they're supposed to spend it on things like the police. They're not supposed to spend it on just random projects or silly things that they have in their head, and they tend to spend it on kind of silly things very often. But as you get older, you'll realize how, how little you like taxes. And he's way off the stuff. I come from a state called California, oh, where, where, where monsters roam the streets and garbage is strewn everywhere. I think that Biden kind of makes up the rules as he goes. I don't think, unfortunately, he cares very much about the rules for being president. I think he just tries to do whatever he can do. Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia is my current favorite Democrat. He's preventing Joe Biden from doing a lot of bad things. So, guys, you just learn more than you will in all of college about how the government works. If I was teaching a class, or if any other lefty was teaching a class, these guys would melt down over it. And they would say, this is flat-out propaganda. You're indoctrinating these kids. Uh, You cannot be biased when dealing with kids this young. In fact, you should probably have it apolitical for kids this age because they're too young to really wrap their minds around a lot of the concepts. That's what they would say if a lefty was doing this. But since he does it, they got the cutesy little music in the background, and they act like, oh, this is fun and enjoyable and entertaining. So in terms of having some sort of objective standard or criteria as to when it's okay to inject, you know, biased ideological politics into the minds of kids, there is none for them. When we do it, it's okay. When you do it, it's bad, it's evil, it's wrong. That is definitely the way they look at it. Now, beyond that, let's go to some of his points here. He says, Manchin is my favorite. Well, of course Manchin is your favorite, because he's a Democrat who voted overall about 50% of the time with Trump um, in, in the last portion of Trump's time in office. He actually voted 60% of the time with Trump. So, yes, you like Joe Manchin because he's Republican light. Uh, And also, I think more importantly, it's not just that. It's also that he's a a giant sellout and corporate whore with no soul whatsoever, and he takes money from these giant industries and then kills popular legislation like universal pre-K and expanded child tax credit and lower prescription drug prices. 
Um, ben wouldn't say, hey, I like this guy because he's a corporate sellout, but that's exactly why he likes this guy, because Ben has this notion that, you know, he supports an unfettered free market. But in reality, Ben is a corporatist. So in other words, when corporations donate to politicians, and then politicians turn around and deregulate those corporations or give them special subsidies, which is just corporate welfare, Ben supports that. He supports that. So he's not actually like a Ron Paul-style free market capitalist where Ron Paul would say, look, I'm against welfare welfare, but I'm also against corporate welfare. That is not Ben's position. Ben's position is to support the status quo, which is rank corporatism. Uh, He says, I love this one. Biden doesn't follow the rules. He sort of makes them up as he goes along. Now, is that true about Joe Biden? Yeah, that is true. Um, It is even more true of Donald Trump, and it is even more true of George W. Bush. And Ben was one of the most staunch defenders of George W. Bush I've ever seen. I've ever seen. I mean, this is a guy every step of the way, as Bush wanted to wage and did wage an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us, Ben Shapiro was there defending him and also writing articles about how collateral damage isn't so bad. In other words, killing innocent civilians, eh, what are you going to do? It's part of war. There's nothing we can do about it. He was a staunch defender of torture. Torture, the same kind of torture that when it happened to our people in World War II, we sentenced the Japanese soldiers who did it to death, to death. So for Ben Shapiro to act like Biden doesn't really care about the rules. Yeah, true enough. Neither did Trump. Neither did George W. Bush. But you would never say it about Trump and George W. Bush because you're a partisan hack. And that's the difference between a commentator like myself or many others who are nominally on the left and Ben Shapiro is that he's playing for a team. We are not. I'm trying my absolute best to call balls and strikes and be honest and upfront with my own biases and ideological uh, perspectives. He is just no different than any random Fox host who's incredibly opinionated. There's no difference between, you know, right-wing alternative new media or independent media, if you dare call it independent media because it's not really independent media, and mainstream media hosts on the right. There's no difference. No difference at all. Um, He says, I come from California where monsters roam the streets. Gee, I wonder what he's referring to there. He's talking about homeless people when he says monsters roam the streets. Interesting way to refer to homeless people. You know, people who might have drug addiction problems or might be mentally ill or might, uh, you know, have had a rough go of it in life. Maybe they lost a loved one. Maybe they couldn't keep it together and hold down a job or whatever it is. Ben describes these people as monsters. Now, by the way, even if I grant him that, which I don't, that they're monsters, okay, well, would you like to get them off the street? Would you like to do a housing first policy, which we know works because they did it in Finland and it was wildly successful? Is that what you want? You want to put a roof over all their heads? Look, you're, you're framing it as monsters walking the streets is a bad thing. Okay, so there's an easy solution. We can get the so-called monsters off the streets with a housing first policy. Do you support that? No, he doesn't support that. He doesn't support that at all. So the thing that is the obvious answer is not a policy he supports. He just wants to shame and finger wag at these people who are down on their luck worse than anybody else in the country. That's what he wants to do. Monsters roam the streets. It's the dehumanization of homeless people. That's what it is. Uh, he says about the government, and this part is, is, is true. He says um, they're supposed to spend the money on stuff like the police, 
not little projects. Uh, well, actually, I'm sorry. That part is not true. There's a different part that I'll get to, which is true, so hold on for that. But he says they're supposed to spend it on stuff like the police, not little projects. Um, so, yes, yeah, the government, of course, is supposed to you know, spend some of the money on police, but not supposed to spend it on, quote, little projects. That's not for Ben Shapiro to decide. That's why, on paper, what we're supposed to be is not just a constitutional republic, but also a representative democracy. So, in other words, as long as we're not dealing with a constitutional issue, which is a right, which is off the table, um, then it should be up to the will of the people in what's supposed to be a democracy. But he frames it as like, no, 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 you're not supposed to spend it on little projects. No, that's your opinion. But if the American people deem, if a majority of them say, hey, I do want to spend it on whatever this quote-unquote little project is, like universal pre-K, for example, then we're supposed to do that. Then we're supposed to do that. But he is not in favor of that, which shows he actually is, is critical of small-D democracy. When he says taxes are theft, of course, that's... He's talking to a group of children and... He's making an extremist, anarcho-capitalist argument that denies the existence of a basic social contract. Basic social contract. He had nothing to say about the idea of a social contract to these children. And so now they think, you know, taxes are theft. As if there's no difference between theft and taxes. Unbelievable. Um, But now let's get to the the most important point and the most interesting point and the one that everybody's focusing on. Uh, Shapiro says, government takes all of your money and gives you very little in return. And then the kid says, in response to that, that's not true. And then later on, another kid goes on to say, he's wrong about this stuff, or he's wrong about a lot of this stuff, or whatever. Uh, Now, it's kind of gangster that a child very confidently was like, that's not true, to Ben Shapiro, uh, just trying to fact check him in real time. But I will say, on this point, Ben is actually correct. That is true. Uh, The government does take a lot of your money, and give you very little in return. The difference is we actually want, people who are on the left want the government to give us stuff in return for our taxes. We want that money to be spent efficiently on things that are the basics in society, that give everybody a reasonable floor, that makes it so that there's a social safety net and then after everybody's basic needs are met, okay, then you could have competition, then you could try to achieve some sort of a meritocracy. So we want that money uh, to go to good things. The problem is Ben Shapiro does not. Ben Shapiro doesn't want your taxes to go to universal health care and universal education and, you know, paid vacation time by law. He doesn't like those things. He likes to... Uh, swap them aside and call them socialist and demonize them. So Ben Shapiro's solution is let's just not have taxes or not have, uh, you know, more than a certain low percentage of taxes, and let's not really have a basic social safety net. That's his solution. So he just wants the government to not really tax much at all, and then you get nothing. That's his solution. Uh, Whereas, you know, my solution would be you already pay – if you're in the working class, you already pay, uh, you know, a decent amount of taxes. And I don't necessarily want to raise your taxes, but what I want to do is structure the budget so that the amount you do pay goes towards things that we all want, that we all care about, things that other developed countries already have implemented. So I think Ben's actually right when he says the government takes a lot of your money and gives you very little in return. But the reason that's the case is because our tax money is largely going towards what? Well, endless war, for example. Endless war is one thing. Uh, 
Wall Street bailouts, corporate subsidies. Like, that's the stuff our money is going towards, and I don't want it to go towards that. I want it to go towards universal health care and universal education, including higher education and paid vacation time by law and things of that nature. So I know they thought this was cute. I know they thought that this is, uh, you know, this is Ben teaching the kids or whatever, but seriously, stop and think about it. Do a little thought experiment here. That was me teaching the class, saying the things that I say. How would they react to it? I have no doubt that would be on Ben Shapiro's show, and he would be saying we're rank propagandists indoctrinating children because when they do it, they think it's okay. If we do it, they think it's evil. And uh, there is no objective standard. And uh, that's like virtually everything else Ben Shapiro says and does. Okay. Now. Oh, God damn it. I don't have my, um, my, whatchamacallit. My stupid seltzer, which I need. It's a shame. All right, let's continue. So Jordan Peterson went on Joe Rogan's podcast, and um, man, it was a wild ride listening to that thing, to say the least. So uh, we'll come back and talk about that in a little bit, but I wanted to share this clip with you here. I saw it while scrolling through Twitter. Uh, Comedian Tim Dillon who's hilarious and also a, a good friend of Joe Rogan. Uh, he was on another podcast. God damn it, I didn't have up the name of that podcast, so I apologize for that. But um, he and his other fellow comedian friend here are going to talk about Jordan Peterson's appearance on Rogan's show. Let's take a look. And uh, Jordan Peterson went into Rogan looking like Huckleberry Finn. Well, his pants were like, looked like he was in a river. He's a brilliant guy. He's a smart guy. Yep. But he looks right now like he's, uh, like he's in his almost his final form, <laughs> which is the Batman villain. Like, he seems to be... He looks like he just took a break from a catering hall handing out fucking shellfish. Yeah, he seems like a, like an angry maitre d' at a Long Island Italian <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> Screaming about climate change. <laughs> oh, you don't like your table? I told you it's the only table here. We don't have an innumerable amount of space. That's the problem with people. They think there's an innumerable amount of opportunities to eat. You can eat the eggplant rollatini, and you can eat it anywhere. It's not immediately clear to me. If we put you in another table, you'd be having a better thing. The thing about Marxism <laughs> and the about Tim Dillon is that he really, he goes after everybody. There are no sacred cows with this dude. And as a lot of you guys know, in uh, modern online discourse, there are some areas which feel like no-go zones because you don't want the hardcore fans of certain people to come after you because even the mildest criticism will lead them to absolutely flip out. But Tim Dillon does not give a fuck and uh, he goes after everybody. So that was hilarious. Look, I did. I watched that uh, entire podcast, uh, Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan, and 
goddamn, there's so much we could say to, to break down some of the claims made by Jordan now. Look, we talked about it before. Uh, he was scheduled to come on Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, at the last minute, he backed out of it, and he said, I got to prep for uh, you know, my upcoming months-long speaking tour. We have a commitment that, hey, he'll be on uh, sometime in June or July. We'll see whether or not that actually happens, but um, there's a reason why we want to talk to Jordan Peterson. Some of the stuff he says, like the self-help stuff, I'll admit it. Look, I'm a sucker for a good uh, you know, motivational speaker self-help person. I think that that stuff actually has genuine value in it, even though it can get a little bit silly and a little bit corny. And I think he's really good at that stuff. But at the same time, when we get to politics and religion and science stuff, I mean, I massive, massive disagreements with the guy. So, I mean, I want to have, you know, this conversation with Jordan to his face and give him some pushback because I know that you know, generally speaking, these intellectual dark web types love to talk about, like, having open conversations and reasonable disagreements and whatnot. But you got to keep it real. Most of the time that these people are doing podcasts or doing shows or whatever, it's largely a giant circle jerk. And so it'd be nice to just have some real disagreement and see what he says when he's presented with some decent pushback. So in that podcast with Joe Rogan, um, there was one part at the very beginning, they start talking about climate change and there's so much that was said there that's silly. Like Jordan says something along the lines of, well, the problem with the climate change types is that they don't factor quote everything into their models because the climate is quote everything. And so I guess he doesn't trust the overwhelming Mount Everest of data that says climate change is real, it's happening, it's bad, and we should probably do something about it before we have wars over water, for example, and extreme drought and famine and have to spend trillions of dollars on uh, the cleanup for the worsening extreme weather events. And he basically sort of frames it as like, well, this is more of an individual issue, climate change. And this is something I've heard him say previously as well. Guys, fact of the matter is, and I remember covering this story not too long ago, just 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. One company, or excuse me, 100 companies responsible for 71% of global emissions. So in other words, and you all know this, but climate change is not something like, you know, individuals can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and like, you know, stop putting so much gas in their car, whatever, or leaving the lights on for too long. No, you absolutely have to regulate the companies in order to reduce emissions and you have to do basically, uh, you know, a New Deal-level project to switch the economy towards renewable and green technology. Because it doesn't matter how much individuals get their act together, that's not really going to make a dent if 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. So on the climate change stuff, uh, look, just demonstrably incorrect things were said. You have um, one of the parts that caught my eye the most was, they're talking about uh, outsourcing jobs. And Joe is basically trying to say like, look, the American middle class has been obliterated by outsourcing, by these corporations just trying to make an extra buck shipping jobs to China and Mexico and paying pennies on the dollar uh, to workers. And the working class here got absolutely eviscerated in the process. 
And Jordan makes an argument for neoliberalism and globalism. And he basically says, like, well, that, that's the only way, the only way to get, you know, the people in China to not be poor anymore. And so the upside of that is, well, now the people in China are going to do better off. And that means it's much less likely that we'll have a war. So in the long run, it's a net positive to do things like NAFTA and uh, permanent normal trade relations with China and all of these so-called free trade deals, which are just corporate outsourcing deals. And look, on that point, I could not disagree more. I mean, the U.S. government is supposed to represent Americans. That's the whole point. And by the way, do you think that was their policy consideration too? Like, oh, we want to try to end poverty in China, which is why we're doing this. They thought it was like, do you think it's like benevolent or altruistic? And that's why they want to outsource all these jobs. No, they wanted to do it to make an extra buck. And yes, the American working class got absolutely obliterated in the process. So, and by the way, the U.S. politicians who went down this road would not have chosen this path if not for the influence of big money in politics and corporate money in politics, because they ended up representing their donors' interests, the CEOs and the wealthy people, over the interests of the people they're supposed to be representing, their voters, the working class. So could not disagree with him more on that. Uh, he's the only guy who I've seen in the modern era who can just flat out make an argument for liberalism and globalism and still somehow have like a giant following. Now, to be fair, that's not the crux of most of the stuff that he talks about, but when he wanders into the realm of politics and economics, I mean, it's a swing and a miss virtually every single time. And then we get the bizarre claims about the Bible, how the Bible's, quote, the first book. And so he makes these uh, claims about the Bible and how it links up with truth. And it just strikes me as, honestly, funny enough, postmodern garbage, because he likes to critique postmodernism. So I'm trying, man. I'm trying. I want to have these conversations to his face and uh, flesh out the disagreements and see what he says when there's reasonable pushback. But at least at the moment, that has been, um, you know, temporarily put on hold. We shall see if it ever happens. But uh, Tim Dillon really crystallizing in a hilarious way uh, what's going on with Jordan Peterson is hilarious. And Jordan Peterson wearing a tuxedo on Rogan's show sort of reminded me of that movie Step Brothers. Remember that? Where they show up for a job interview and they're wearing tuxedos? And the person interviewing them is like, why are, you, why are you wearing a tuxedo? I don't know, but it's hilarious. And thanks to Tim Dillon for having fun and holding nothing sacred. Because that's what a comedian's supposed to do, man. Comedian's supposed to look at anything that is funny, no matter who it pisses off, or how out of bounds and off limits it appears in modern society, a comedian is supposed to go there. And look, sometimes maybe they cross the line when they shouldn't cross the line or whatever, but there's no way of knowing where that line is unless you're getting close to it. So I'm sure his menchies are filled with, um, you know, angry Peterson fans, but everybody's got to have a sense of humor, man. Got to have a sense of humor. And uh, he earned this ribbing, that's for sure. Let's move on. Where are we going now? Oh, we got the Rogan thing. Let's talk about the Rogan thing. Okay. 
So there's a lot going on right now with Joe Rogan and Spotify. There's been an ongoing controversy, and there's been a lot of pressure put on Spotify. So Spotify, in response to all this pressure over Joe Rogan, Neil Young said basically me or him talking about Rogan. If Spotify doesn't pull down uh, the Rogan stuff or, I don't know, doesn't deplatform Rogan, then I want my music off the platform. And so Neil Young is getting his music pulled off the platform. Joni something, I forget the last name, is getting her music pulled off the platform. This is like older generations artists. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's guitarist is trying to take his music off the platform and saying basically it's me or Rogan. So there, there's this exodus. Now, there's another angle to this as well, which is, I don't, for those older artists, I don't think Spotify pays them a lot for their music. And I do know that uh, Neil Young has some deal with some other company in regards to his music, and he's getting paid a lot for that. So was that a consideration in um, his decision to, to pull out of Spotify? I don't know. Um, but at the same time, you have a, a number of, right now, as of right now, older artists who are pulling out of the platform and uh, the controversy is costing Spotify quite a bit of money, I think, in terms of, um, I guess, their market value at the moment. So they decided, we got to clean this up in one way or another. So what they did is they released the, this uh, statement about how now they have some new guidelines in regards to um, any podcast that discuss very controversial topics. It's, I don't know if it's like just a warning banner that says, you know, the opinions expressed in this podcast on COVID-19 are out of the mainstream and not with the consensus of scientists. I don't know if it's just a warning banner or if it's similar to what YouTube is doing, where YouTube, if you're watching a video on a controversial topic, they'll have a link right underneath the video to, I don't know if it's the Wikipedia article or other so-called trusted news sources, if it's a topic where, um, you know, you're taking an edgy stance. Um, This is now, we're seeing this happen now with almost all the social media platforms where, Um, they're doing like a soft version of content moderation, where instead of just the Wild West, like live and let live, whatever anybody says, just let it stand on its own, they're at least trying to provide some some basic guardrails as to, I just want to let you know, this is not, you know, these aren't ironclad facts, and here's what the scientific consensus is on the issue. So that's what Spotify decided to do in response to the Rogan controversy. Apparently, uh, Meghan and Harry who Spotify paid $30 million to do a podcast for them, and they turned around and did one over the course of an entire year. Apparently, Megan and Harry are now using the Rogan thing as an excuse to delay their podcast even further, and they're basically saying to Spotify, like, hey, guys, I don't know what's going on with this Rogan thing, but I don't like it. So you got all these different people putting pressure on Spotify over Rogan. And um, what you're about to see here is CNN going after Rogan. Now, I will say, before we get to this video, Joe Rogan actually released a video about this on Instagram that I saw right before I came on the show. And the gist of Joe Rogan's video is like, listen, there are a lot of things with COVID where it was, it was considered conspiracy theory and bannable on social media. Like, for example, the idea that cloth masks don't work. That was considered misinformation originally. Well, now it's not considered misinformation. And in fact, it's universally agreed upon because we've seen the studies and now the government has admitted it. Uh, it used to be considered a conspiracy theory and even racist to say, hey, maybe this virus came from uh, the Wuhan uh, virology lab where they would do studies on bat coronaviruses. Now that's generally accepted as it's possible, if not probable, that that's the source of it. So he says there's all these things that were taboo topics, but now they've come to be conventional wisdom, and so we just have conversations on my show. 
But what I'm going to try to do, this is what Rogan said, what I'm going to try to do is every time I have somebody who's expressing an opinion that's like wildly out of the mainstream, what I'll try to do is counterbalance that by having somebody on immediately after who has the other view, who has the mainstream view. And he says, other than that, I could try my uh, best to do better in terms of my own prep for the podcast so I know more about the topics going into it so that if somebody express, expressing controversial, controversial views, I can hold them more accountable and have a better understanding of the topic more generally. So this is what he's saying. He's like, okay, I'll clean up my act a little bit. I'll have on uh, not just the controversial opinion for the sake of it being contrary, and I'll also have on the mainstream view. So he's making some sort of an effort uh, to clean it up a little bit. And uh, I don't know if that came because of pressure from Spotify. Based off of what I know about Joe, I, I think it probably didn't because he did seem – when it came to the Neil Young thing, he, he was saying, like, look, I like Neil Young. So I, I, didn't, I didn't want this to happen. It actually made me kind of sad. I've always enjoyed his music and all this stuff. So I think he's a, he's a genuine and he's an honest person. And he thought I should probably make some little changes here to clean it up. Um, but there has been a massive pressure campaign from mainstream media to it, basically go further. And so I want to show you this clip from CNN, and then we'll respond to it. You know, as for the role of the platforms, here's what Spotify CEO – uh, told Axios last year about why he doesn't feel like uh, they have a responsibility for what is said by podcasters. We have a lot of really well-paid rappers on Spotify, too, that make tens of millions of dollars, if not more, each year from Spotify, and we don't dictate what they're putting in their songs either. So what's the difference between, say, you know, rap lyrics and a, and a podcaster uh, pushing election lives? Do you buy that uh, that excuse there from the CEO? Um, I think there's a link there where I think that argument falls flat or deflates, Jim, is that any content a rapper is putting out or even uh, strongly held extremist political views um, don't shouldn't be conflated with junk science that spread and results and our ICUs being overrun. So I do think Americans and the courts uh, correctly afford a special protections or fidelity to medical information or the spread of junk science, as we're seeing with Joe Rogan. I would argue that, look, if you can reverse engineer some of Steve Bannon's comments to injury from an insurrection, that's one thing. Um, and that, obviously, the courts have to figure that out. What I think that Spotify will come under pressure for is when 270 doctors uh, say that this is a real, that, that Joe Rogan is a menace, and we have 850,000 dead Americans, more Americans have died from COVID than all combat fatalities combined in all of our conflicts. You know, even Section 230 has carve-outs for sex trafficking, for IP violation, and I think it's just a different ballgame when you start talking about uh, junk science as it relates to medical, uh, medical topics. So I think they might have... They might have poked the wrong bear here. We'll see if another, if other, if other shoes drop, if you will. So, so does that mean that uh, Neil Young uh, could could use some uh, some help in all of this? I mean, you know, if some other big name artists were to step in uh, and uh, you know hop on the bandwagon, so to speak. Well, that's exactly right, Jim. This is an economic decision. Um, Joe Rogan is the biggest artist in the world in a media podcasting. Um, Neil Young is not. And so this was probably a fairly easy decision for them. Now, if Taylor Swift or Drake decide they want off the platform, they might find religion around junk science as it relates to COVID-19. Yeah. 
Uh, and, and what worries you the most uh, right now when you just look at, you know, the entire spectrum of disinformation that we see out there? Uh, is it podcasts? Is it places like Fox? Is it all of that taken together? I think it's a few things. I think our discourse has become incredibly coarse. I think there are algorithms on Facebook and Google that will recommend extreme dieting sites to a 5'10", 100-pound, 15-year-old or suggest a white supremacist site to a young man who is searching. Um, I worry that these organizations have become so bulletproof and have overrun Washington that their um, ability to show no regard for a reckless abandon for the health of the Commonwealth, weaponize our elections, depress our teens, that the algebra of deterrence really isn't in place here, that they have largely run uh, amok and are immune from the same standards we've held other companies to. For some reason, we have granted these companies the, mothers, the mother of all hall passes. So to that last point, that these companies have been granted the mother of all hall passes, that's very simply because they are, they're just a digital bathroom wall. Like, that's the whole idea of all of these social media companies. Um, there is no filtering or regulation of opinions. So, you know, if some aunt in Kentucky wants to go on Facebook and rant about how she thinks the election was stolen from Donald Trump, there is no ministry of truth or higher agency that can pull down that post because the whole point is that Facebook is not a journalistic outlet. You know, and, and Twitter is not that either. It's for people to go on there and communicate with other people and talk shit and blow off steam. And these, I mean, you might not like that, but there's always going to be, uh, you know, a need in the market for exactly that, what is effectively the public square. Now, sometimes those the public square turn poisonous and toxic and the conversation is not healthy. Of course, of course, you could argue the majority of the stuff that goes on on social media is not um, is not healthy. But that's not an argument against it existing, and that's not an argument for somehow treating these outlets like they're Time Magazine or somehow treating them like they're, you know, everything that's put out there needs to be 100% factual, because that's just not the point of them. Uh, so let's go through a lot of the arguments that they make here. I mean, if you look at the, the banner at the bottom of the screen and the stuff that says, God, they're Try, they're loading the conversation so much, man. Democracy in peril. Spotify under pressure for misinformation. Podcasters play a pivotal role in pumping out misinformation. Now, does that happen sometimes? Absolutely, that happens. It also happens in mainstream media, and it happens a lot in mainstream media, and they have more power. So whenever they pump out misinformation... Nobody turns around and calls for them to be censored or banned or deplatformed or regulated heavily. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. So, you know, for example, just one example, the whole Jussie Smollett thing. I didn't touch that with a 10-foot pole when it came out because I thought that smells fishy, and I'm not sold on it. But a lot of the mainstream media outlets ran with it at 100 miles an hour. Now, was that something where we were talking about you need to regulate them? You need to, you know, ban the outlets? You need to derank them in the YouTube algorithm. You need to restrict CNN's um, Twitter profile. No, nobody said that. These media outlets pushed the illegal offensive Iraq war on us, and there was never a reckoning for that. In fact, if you were wrong on it, you got promoted. If you were correct, like Phil Donahue or Jesse Ventura, you were eventually kicked off the platform. When they've done COVID misinformation, for the love of God, this was one of the points from Rogan, and he's right. There was a time when Fauci was out there saying, 
masks don't work. You don't need to wear a mask. And then later on, of course, they flipped that and said, well, actually, you should wear a mask. Now, there is a hierarchy of masks. Don't get it twisted. There was a study in Bangladesh that came out. 37% of particulate matter is blocked by cloth masks. 37% is not all that much. And the aerosols can definitely get through and they can carry the virus. Um, surgical masks stop 76% of particulate matter. They're a little better because the cloth that they're made with is like made specifically to repel viruses. And then you have the N95 masks, which stop 95 to 99% um, of the particulate matter and the virus from getting to you. So there is a hierarchy of masks. But Fauci early on was just like, masks don't work. You don't need to wear them. Now, why wasn't he fired? Why wasn't he called to be banned from social media? Or why wasn't there some call for high-level regulation of him and the stuff that he's saying when it came to the the virus coming from the lab, they laughed it out of town and they said, hey, look, this is a conspiracy theory. And then eventually now everybody admits that's actually not true. It very well may have come from that. So it's a pandemic. Every step of the way, people, you know, have gotten things wrong or have been off base. And that doesn't mean that we're not all trying. I think everybody is trying, but, you know, people mess up. So you can't just ban the conversation about this stuff. Now, look, I'll admit the Dr. Malone podcast and Dr. McCullough podcast that Rogan had, when I, when I watched those podcasts, I was fact-checking as they went along. And there are a lot of, I mean, I think you could argue that Malone and McCullough are some of the worst on this stuff because they just say things that are demonstrably untrue and they say them with a lot of confidence. So I'm not saying that uh, they're blame-free or whatever. In fact, I think they're generally odious to the public discourse. Uh, but... You cannot just say, let's, you know, pull them, pull them down, pull down the podcast, because it's also the slippery, slippery slope of all time. And if you're going to do that, well, uh, why not take down JFK conspiracy stuff? Because it, it, you know, contradicts the official narrative. Why not take down 9-11 conspiracy stuff? Because it contradicts the official narrative. Why not take down stuff about conspiracies that we actually know are true because they conflict with the official narrative, like Operation Northwoods or Bay of Pigs or whatever. There's a lot of conspiracies that we now know are absolutely factual, but it does still conflict with the official narrative. So what are you going to do? I mean, this is exactly what happened with WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks, what did they do? They release actual information about stuff that happened, stuff that powerful people are doing, um, whether it's emails from Hillary Clinton wherein we learned uh, – for one thing, they were openly talking about profiting from the Iraq war. That was something that we learned. Uh, they put their finger on the scale in the 2016 Democratic primary to steal it from Bernie Sanders. That's another thing that we learned from this stuff. Uh, there's been a whole bunch of environmental stuff. Like the, uh, we learned from WikiLeaks that the U.S. basically was granted a loophole to not abide by Australian law when it comes to the environment. And so they've been polluting like crazy. This is all stuff that Julian Assange leaked. Uh, war crimes, we learned about. Um, they called the, called the video collateral murder, where our soldiers uh, massacred innocent civilians and then laughed about it after the fact and then even attacked the first responders. And some of them uh, were kids in the car, and then they were rejected from being sent to a U.S. hospital where it was requested, hey, we accidentally got kids. Let's get them help at the, uh, the Army hospital. And that request was denied. This is all stuff that we learned. Now, look, it all contradicts the official narrative. So... What should you do about that? You cannot have a ministry of truth because how do we know that they're going to be correct and objective and, and unbiased? And who's going to watch the watchmen? And then who's going to watch the watchmen who watch the watchmen? You can't, there is no central authority on information, and that's obvious. Now, there are downsides to that. The downside to that is sometimes you get somebody who's a total fucking crank who gets really popular and you know, works their way up. Somebody like Alex Jones, for example, 
But the price of having free and open discourse is that you're going to have some insane people. You're going to have some cranks who slip through the cracks. Now, in the case of Joe Rogan, even though those two podcasts I disagreed with, Malone and McCullough, massively, and believe me, guys, man, are they off base on a lot of stuff. Um, Rogan is about to have on somebody who is pro-vaccine to present the flip side narrative to that. And guess what? The pro-vaccine argument is going to be a hell of a lot more stronger because it is stronger. And, you know, as long as the guy performs half decent, then he's also going to sway a large chunk of the audience. So I don't know. I don't know what these people want, because let's say they get what they want. And Spotify like pulls Joe Rogan, which is what they're implying that they want. They're prodding Spotify to pull down Joe Rogan. Well, then Rogan is just going to go to another outlet and maybe you shrink his audience by 10% or 15% by kicking him off Spotify and he goes to Rumble or he goes to Substack or he goes to whatever, fill in the blank with whatever company would gladly welcome him with open arms because there's a million of them that would do that. At the end of the day, if it's 10 to 15% drop in the audience, that's all that's going to happen. So what are you even doing? I don't even understand what you're doing. This time would be much better spent for the love of God. I keep calling for this. Now, I'm not an expert, so I'm in no position to do this kind of thing, but a doctor who is correctly pro-vaccine or a scientist who is correctly pro-vaccine, a virologist, whatever, go through the Malone podcast and McCullough podcast with a fine-tooth comb and fact-check every little thing that's wrong. That's what you do. And then pump that out at 1,000 miles an hour on every outlet. And if that argument is stronger, and it is stronger, then you're going to have a better outcome on public health and safety and people's minds. But they don't, like, they don't want to do the hard work. They just want to cheat. They just want to press a button and say, be gone, I don't like this guy. And I think that's total bullshit. And here's how you know they're prodding Spotify to get rid of him. Because Acosta says there, he's like, well, um, if, if other big name artists come out, maybe it would be different. If it was like Drake or Taylor Swift, now Neil Young can use some help. So this is CNN prodding other artists to pull their music from Spotify to force Spotify to ax Joe Rogan. I mean, that's just, that's just dirty. That's just low. Like, I get it. I don't know how many times I could say it. Uh, yes, there are plenty of guests who've been on that podcast who I disagree with vehemently to the point where I'd say they're even odious to the public discourse. That doesn't mean you should just be able to press a button and ax them and, and you know, kick Rogan's podcast off. That's not, what, that, that's not how it works, and that's not how it should work. Because, again, if you talk about the purveyors of misinformation – the people who are making the criticism are some of the worst purveyors of misinformation. And the difference is they never, ever, 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 ever own up to it, ever. They just act like they were never wrong about anything, even though they're wrong about so much. And also, you can't help but think, on some level, I don't know why they view Rogan as competition, but they view him as competition to them. And he's got so much more trust built than they do. And, like, Joe Rogan is a comedian, podcaster, talking shit who sometimes wanders into the realm of politics and economics and every topic under the sun. But he'll, tell, he'll be the first to tell you, I'm not, like, I'm not trying to do some CNN shit. I'm not trying to give news. Like, I'm a different thing. But he has a much bigger audience, and he's much more trusted, and there's no reckoning with that among media elites. Because really, in, in many ways, it's an anti-meritocracy for these big media outlets. Read Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. The way that it works is they only hire people who they know are not going to rock the boat too much and who are going to 
push the narrative that they want them to push, the pro-establishment narrative, pro-status quo narrative. And so that's why you get somebody who's underwhelming like Wolf Blitzer who gets 47 hours a day on CNN. That's how you get somebody like Jim Acosta, smug, self-righteous prick, and Brian Stelter, who they do segments seemingly every week that's like, well, they really should do more banning and censoring of things I don't like. (laughs) It just, it makes no sense, man. Again, I have no love for McCullough and Malone. I think they're odious to the public discourse. I think they're wrong about the majority of the claims that they make. I mean, the, the Malone guy, after he did Rogan's podcast where he put on a more reasonable sounding face, he then went on Alex Jones' show and was talking about the Great Reset Theory. So I got no love for these guys whatsoever. But for the love of God, take the challenge sincerely and have experts who can debunk each individual claim because there's so much there to debunk. And if I can do it, and I'm an asshole just with Google checking the things that they say, of course a scientist or a, or a virologist or an expert or a doctor or whatever can do it. But instead of doing that, they want to take the cheap shortcut out and say, ban them. Even, uh, guys, I beg of you, even those of you who did actively dislike Joe Rogan and hate Joe Rogan and hate his show, even you guys need to understand that the cat's out of the bag with this whole censorship and deplatforming thing, and there's no putting it back in. And that is not good for all of us. For the love of God, they pulled down, they pulled down Antifa accounts, the biggest Antifa accounts on Twitter. They pull down lefties all the time under the guise of their, you know, this is Russian disinformation and their bots or whatever. They do this all the time. They pulled down the Donald from Reddit, but they also pulled down the Chapo Trap House subreddit. It never stops where you want it to stop. It's always going to keep going. And the fact of the matter is, the real solution that nobody in the mainstream would consider a solution, in fact, they would say it's furthering the problem, but it's a real solution, is to basically regulate all of the big social media companies like their public utilities. You've heard me on my soapbox before with the same point. I seemingly make it every show, but I say it because it's true. Yes, I'm repetitive. I'm repetitive because the problems didn't change overnight. They're the exact same as the last time I talked about it. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, they should all be regulated like their public utilities. You expand First Amendment protections. No, that does not mean it's open season and you could do direct threats of violence or you could do doxing or you could do targeted harassment. All those things are still illegal under the law, and so they would be illegal even under you know, this, this public square approach. But that's the answer. That's the solution. Because what these guys want to do is have Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires determine who can and cannot speak. And also, you heard them at the end, talk, you know, they're making the case for the algorithm. Oh, people get pushed towards extreme videos. What's their solution to it? Redirect everything to us. So they just want to game the system to get more popular and get more views and get more clicks. That's all they want to do. And, of course, now with YouTube axing the dislike button, people who watch a CNN video don't even know. It's got like an 80% dislike rate because they, act, they got rid of the dislike button. So they, it's, a, it's trying to build a false consensus. We're where you need to go for information. We're the best, uh, and we're, we're doing a wonderful job. And, oh, would you look at that? Our stuff happens to get pushed in your feed and your timeline all of the time. It's like I used to get recommended all the time on YouTube. Then what? Eventually, when they started uh, only pushing um, authoritative news sources, my stuff doesn't get recommended much anymore. So what happens? If you put a, a video of mine and put it on autoplay, you used to be able to just listen to my videos over and over. Now it redirects to Trevor Noah. Now it redirects to John Oliver, the the safe, official, edgy outlets. So, I mean, be careful what you wish for, guys, because this stuff is, 
devastating to independent media and new media. It's the slippery, slippery slope of all time. We're already halfway down that slippery slope. And if you can't see that this is not healthy, then I don't know what to tell you. But as much as you may disagree with certain Rogan podcasts or even hate Joe Rogan himself, it, this is bigger than Joe Rogan. It's way bigger than Joe Rogan. And I hope everybody recognizes that at this late date. All right, where are we going? Jesse Waters. So this video is uh, really interesting to me. Jesse Waters has a new Fox show. He invited on somebody from the anti-work subreddit. The anti-work subreddit is exactly what it sounds like. I guess it's a bunch of people who are so sick and fed up with the current economy and, and the way the system works. So they basically are like checking out of the system and they're like, I can't do this anymore. I'm just flat out anti-work. It's almost like that, you know, that movie Office Space? Phenomenal movie. You should watch it if you haven't. It's almost like those sorts of people have this place where they go and they talk about all their issues. And it's really interesting. So anyway, Jesse Waters talks to this guy, or um, excuse me, uh, her name is Doreen. I don't know if she's trans or non-binary, but her name's Doreen. And um, this does not go well at all. This is a train wreck of an interview. Another group of Americans emerged. Those who decided they don't want to work at all. A Reddit page called Anti-Work, Unemployment for All, not just the rich, provides a safe space for these like-minded people who want to do as little as possible and still get paid. The page has become one of the most popular on Reddit. There's now over 1.6 million subscribers. Joining me now is the person who operates this anti-work group, Doreen Ford. All right, so Doreen, why do you like the idea of being home, not working, but still getting paid by corporate America? Yeah, uh, so there's some misconceptions about the movement. Um, so we're a movement where we want to reduce the amount of work that people feel like they're forced to, to do. Um, and so we want to still put in effort, we want to put in labor, um, but we don't want to necessarily uh, be in a position where we feel trapped. You know, um, you just quoted from Office Space, where that person feels very trapped in their job. I think we're calling for a society where there's less of that. Um, but, yeah, absolutely, people still want to do things. They just want to do things where they feel rewarded and they feel like they're in a good spot in their life uh, and that their job respects them and stuff like that. Um, you know, there's varying... So, you're, the, uh, so Doreen, you're not being forced to work. This isn't, this isn't slave labor. You, you've, you've applied for a job. You've agreed to the terms and conditions of the employment. And, you know, you can walk away from that job at any time and quit. So I don't understand yeah, really I'm, what this is about, sure. except it sounds like maybe people are just being lazy. Are you encouraging people well, sure. to be lazy? Um, so I think laziness is um, a virtue in a society where people constantly want you to be productive 24-7, and it's good to have rest. Um, that doesn't mean you should be resting all the time or not putting effort into things that you care about. But I think one of the What do you think is like a work good work day? How many hours is, is you know, a solid work day in, in your ideal right. society? 
Sure. I mean, I think as much as people want. I mean, I personally uh, work. I have I have like a 20, 25-hour work week, which I think is fairly good. Um, so I would like less work hours. Um, and what I do you do, Doreen? Oh, I'm a dog walker. A dog walker. Okay. Yeah. And how, uh, yeah, so how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Sure, I'm 30. You're 30. Okay. And is there something you want to do besides being a dog walker? Do you aspire to do anything more than dog walking, or is that kind of your, your pinnacle? Uh, I, I love working with dogs. If I had to do this rest of my life, you know, I wouldn't be super complaining. You know, dogs are wonderful animals. Uh, but I'm, I would love to teach. Uh, I would love to, um, you know, uh, work, with, work with people and what, stuff like that. What would that. you yeah. teach, Doreen? Uh, a philosophy, mostly. Philosophy. Just introduction to philosophy, critical thinking, reason, stuff like that. Okay. Well, I would love to take your class, Doreen. I would just be taking notes the whole time and, you know what, a professor is a very similar schedule than something that you're imagining. So I think that actually might, might work perfectly for you. Listen, uh, I think this might not be the greatest idea, but who am I to judge? So let's break this down. The right has built this caricature of the left, this straw man of the left, that this is what the left is. The left is just lazy and they don't want to work. And so that makes it easier for them to frame the conversation as if this is just a personal moral failing on your part. This is a discipline problem on your, your part. You're not raised with the proper values, and so this is like a cultural issue, and you're the problem. And this is the embodiment of the problem. Now, that caricature is exactly that. It's a caricature. And it's not accurate. Because the overwhelming majority of people want to be able to provide for their families and be productive. Now, there's always going to be some small percentage of people who genuinely are like the office space character, Peter, and the other ones who are just like, I just, I just have dreams of doing absolutely nothing. Let me watch kung fu movies all day. And, look, that's real. But, again, I think the numbers are tiny. I think maybe you'd be talking about, Minimum 1% of, the, uh, of people in the country, probably more generally like in the world, maximum, geez, maybe 15%. Like that's the range. Anywhere from 1% to 15% might actually fit this, this caricature. Um, but my issue with the anti-work thing is that it's, they're, they're missing the main point. The main point is going right over their heads. So, listen, I don't begrudge people with the current economy and the way it's structured and the way capitalism functions. I actually don't begrudge people who have this instinct of, like, I just want to say fuck it and walk away. Like, I'm anti-work. I don't begrudge people that. And, in fact, under the current system, maybe that percentage of people who want to do that is a lot higher than the numbers I just discussed. But the reason for that is because the work is alienating. And because you're effectively forced into these positions that are not fulfilling and they're not meaningful and they don't give you purpose in life and clarity in life. And so my issue with this is they're not getting to the root of the actual problem. The root of the problem is we have this exploitative capitalist system which makes people feel this way. So how do you solve this? Well, you solve this 
by implementing leftist policies. So what do I mean by that? At the bare minimum, if we had a thriving social democracy, that would then give people more leeway to actually pick a career that is fulfilling and meaningful for them. If people's basic needs are met, if you have health care, if you have housing, if you have education, including higher education, and even including like trade school, if you have a universal basic income where your basic needs are met. So in other words, if we're having a 100-yard dash and everybody starts at the zero-yard line and then they fire that gun in the air and you all take off, the overwhelming majority of people are going to run because they feel like, hey, it's a fair system, it's a fair game. Now I, have, now I have a starting point where I can actually afford to take a month or take a year or two years to really determine what do I actually want to do with my time? What do I actually want to do with my life? And when you get to a position like that, people will find more meaningful work. Now, that's the, the basic answer, right? But there's an even more complex answer, which I think is also true, which is if you democratize the workplace more than it is right now, then people will feel like they have a direct role and a direct say in their own destiny and the destiny of the company that they have to work for. And so if you have that responsibility, you take it more seriously and you're not alienated from your own labor and the fruits of your own labor as well. So if you have more of a democratic economy, people have, feel like they have more of a stake in what's going on, and then they will much more support work and want to work. So the real problem here is that is the current system as it's structured. Because listen, if you have a system where you work a full-time job, you don't make enough money to survive, you're doing some menial labor that you actively dislike. Um, you know, I forget what the number was. What was it, like 20% of people feel engaged at work? That's basically, that's like saying only 20% of people, I forget the exact number, so correct me if I'm wrong, guys, in the comment section. But something like only 20% of people or 10% of people um, actually like their job. Well, that's the problem. The problem is the way we've structured the economy, people are doing jobs they don't want to do for wages that they can't survive on. And so this anti-work thing is just sort of like you're missing the main point. If you take all of this energy and push it towards those solutions, whether it's let's get us to a thriving social democracy, universal health care, universal education, including higher education and trade school, paid vacation time by law, universal basic income. If they took all this energy and put it towards that, then way more of them would want to work and would feel connected to their work and it would be meaningful. Uh, and then, of course, final thing is like also just the, the general work-life balance in this work-leisure balance in this country is just off. You know, like we should have a, a work week that's maybe 30 hours. We should have a four-day work week. And by the way, we've learned from studies on this that in a four-day work week, people are actually just as productive as a five-day work week, if not more productive, and they self-report being happier because they're not overworked. So that's another change that you could make that would have uh, better outcomes. But the anti-work thing is like, it's just a way to blow off steam, but you're missing the main point. And so they just want to sort of check out of the system and become that caricature and become that straw man that the right has of the left. And that does no favors optically or substantively for the left. So, and, and by the way, Doreen was, I think, fired as some moderator or something of, of the anti-work subreddit. But... Look, man, I get it. I get the concerns. Um, I get that feeling. But you have to understand, the feeling is not inherent 
in you. The feeling is a natural byproduct of a corrupt, rigged capitalist system. That's the bottom line. I hope people can digest that point because then you can use this energy towards more productive ends. You could use this energy towards fighting for something like Medicare for All and free college and a living wage and um, universal basic income. You can use this energy towards democratizing the workplace much more than it currently is. If you use this energy for that, if you use this energy for a general strike where you have those demands, well, then you're getting somewhere. And by the way, I think there was over 1 million, like 1.6 million people as part of the subreddit. So it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And even under an ideal system, yes, maybe you'll have 1% or 5% or at most 15% of people who still just want to sort of check out of the system. Okay, fair enough, but the overwhelming majority will not want to do that. And that's worth something. So there you have it. Um, I hope people in the anti-work subreddit understand where I'm coming from because I'm not knocking them. But clearly, if you're going to have somebody, you know, represent. And, and Doreen didn't get the approval of the subreddit before doing this. So I think they were all mad at her. But, yeah, if you're going to have somebody represent the movement, they should be um, well-spoken. The optic should be better. Wear a suit or something. Look official. Have your talking points nice and sharp so that they land. Instead, this is Jesse Waters just beating up on somebody when this is an interesting viewpoint that deserves a much more academic and intelligent and thoughtful conversation than it got. All right, next. So President Trump did a rally the other day, and um, I feel like it's true. His rallies are getting, like, more and more extreme with a lot of the comments that he's making and how hard he's leaning into the stolen election stuff. There was a time when he more shied away from it. He still believed it, but he, he shied away from it and didn't talk about it too much. He was still trying to appeal to normies to one extent or another. He's now given up on appealing to normies which actually is Trump's one major Achilles heel here is that even for 2024, even though he's the favorite, in my opinion, he's so deep in that right-wing bubble, he's such a Fox News grandpa, and now he's catering so hard to the base, to the fringe, that he's losing touch with the normies. And even with Biden uh, doing a terrible job as president and his numbers being low, if Trump keeps going down this path, there are consequences to it, man, and he won't win again if that's the case. So let me go ahead and show you this article here from The Hill. Former President Trump on Saturday warned of the biggest protests we have ever had in the United States if prosecutors do anything illegal in their investigations into him and his businesses. Speaking at a rally in Conroe, Texas on Saturday, Trump spoke about the local and federal probes targeting his businesses and political activities, including lawmakers investigating the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol. Quote, if these radical, vicious, racist prosecutors do anything wrong or illegal, I hope we are going to have in this country the biggest protests we've ever had in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Atlanta, and elsewhere, because our country and our elections are corrupt, Trump told the crowd of his supporters. Trump accused New York Attorney General Letitia James of launching a political attack against him. James claimed in a court filing last week that her office discovered evidence of Trump's company using fraudulent or misleading valuations of its golf clubs, skyscrapers, and other property to secure loans and tax benefits. His mention of Atlanta apparently refers to an investigation being led by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis into whether Trump and others acted criminally when trying to pressure Georgia officials into overturning President Biden's win in the 2020 election. Okay, so here's what's happening, guys. I've, I've maintained all along. Now, remember, I was a very staunch critic of Russiagate. And looking back at that, I'm actually proud that I stuck to my guns the entire time because I was right. Nothing came of it. Trump was not Vladimir Putin's puppet. If anything, he was too hawkish and he armed, uh, you know, neo-Nazi 
Ukrainian rebels right on Russia's border in Ukraine. He rejected the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So his policies were hawkish, even though he was being accused of being a puppet of Vladimir Putin. I said, this doesn't make any sense. And none of the claims really had any evidence. Where I told you there was always evidence is that Trump has been a businessman for decades. And without a doubt, he had dealings with the mafia. I mean, if you're in real estate in New York in the 1980s, you have to have mob connections. And in fact, one of his lawyers, was it Roy Cohn, I think his name is, he was the top lawyer for a lot of the crime families. So I have no doubt Trump had mafia connections, but beyond the mafia connections, because maybe it's, you know, we're too far after the fact, it's harder to collect evidence, you can't prove that, and what exactly you're going to take him down for, whatever, all that stuff is fair. But what we know for sure is Trump's committed fraud a number of times. He did it with Trump University calling his non-university a university as if that's legally allowed. It's not allowed. He's not accredited, nothing of that nature. He did classic upselling techniques in there. So he's just committing fraud, and he had to pay out millions uh, as a result of that. So that's one example. Other examples are money laundering that he's almost certainly been involved in. There was something going on with his, uh, I think, Panama Hotel is, is one thing that we discussed previously on the show. What they're talking about with his taxes is maybe the biggest issue. There was a big report on this in the New York Times that was very detailed that laid out exactly how not only Trump massively cheated on his taxes, uh, but also when he inherited money from his father and his siblings did as well, the, the loopholes that they used in order to dodge taxes. And so now I'm sure they, have, they had great lawyers and tax experts, so maybe a lot of what they did was legal, but some of the things are definitely not legal. Like the whole, what he would do is he would undervalue his properties when, when paying taxes. He would say it's worth way less than it is, maybe 50% less or even 70% less than what it is. And then at other times when he's trying to count it towards his net worth or he's trying to sell a certain property, he would massively jack it up. And so there were all these little things that he did that are pretty clearly illegal. So now you have Letitia James, who, by the way, also took down Andrew Cuomo, who's now going after Trump. And Trump's saying, look, I'm going to use the power I have, which is my people. And so he's out there saying, if anything happens with any of these cases, if, so if they bring me down, if they're able to, well, now we've got to storm the streets. So he's willing to use that power, willing to use his people, willing to use the bully pulpit, willing to threaten social unrest. For what? For his own personal gain. This has nothing to do with substantive policy. He's not asking people to go protest for universal health care or ending the wars. No. He's saying, if they come after me with things I actually did that I am guilty of, well, you guys better get out there in the streets. It could get ugly, man. It could get real ugly because guess what? He did commit a lot of standard business crimes. He absolutely did. Uh, and he might get caught for them because this is the same person who brought down Andrew Cuomo. So he's threatening another January 6th type thing, not, you know, more so to just protect his ass from going to prison and his family's ass from going to prison. There was another report that he told, he told somebody close to him, you better make sure if anybody goes to jail, it's not Ivanka, and it would be Don Jr. That's kind of hilarious, by the way. Um, now, the other thing is in this same speech, he said, we need to pardon January 6th rioters. So now he's openly talking about pardoning some of the people who committed straight-up crimes that day. People who may have broken windows going to the Capitol or were armed inside or, or whatever. There were a number of crimes that were committed. I think hundreds of people have been um, charged 
and he's saying, look, they've been treated very unfairly. Hey, maybe what we should do is um, pardon them. So I told you he's getting more and more extreme as the days go by. And I actually have, let me read you this, because this just came out last night as well. So Trump released a statement. Again, you want to talk about getting too fringe and too extreme and losing normies? Trump released this statement. If the vice president, Mike Pence, had, quote, absolutely no right to change the presidential election results in the Senate, despite fraud and many other irregularities, how come the Democrats and the rhino Republicans, like wacky Susan Collins, are desperately trying to pass legislation that will not allow the vice president to change the results of the election? Actually, what they're saying is that Mike Pence did have the right to change the outcome, and they now want to take that right away. Unfortunately, he didn't exercise that power. He could have overturned the election. So here's Trump just openly saying, yeah, we should have done the coup. We should have overturned the results of a Democratic election that we know provably, demonstrably, verifiably has the accurate outcome. Over 60 court cases, Trump lost virtually every single one of them. The Arizona audit, which they thought, oh, this will prove Trump definitely won. Not only had Biden win, it had Biden win by more than we originally thought. And Trump's just saying, Mike Pence should have overturned the election and I should still be in office. See, he's, as he's out of office, he's getting more and more deranged, more and more out of touch. He doesn't have any of that pseudo-populist instinct that he had in 2016 when he ran. And now he's just total Fox News grandpa and almost like my pillow dude acolyte now. Just nothing but personal grievance and... Uh, you know, I'm persecuted, I'm a victim, and you should have stolen the election from me. We should have done a coup. And so, look, if there's any hope, any saving grace for the Democrats at a time when they're polling horrendously and they're doing a shitty job governing, it's that this guy is becoming so extreme that he's alienating every single normie from his pack. So you want to talk about a true race to the bottom? We got Democrats doing absolutely dicky McGee's acts to help people right now, totally pathetic and ineffectual and useless, and you got Trump, who is now the living, walking, breathing embodiment of One America News Network and of Newsmax and, the, and my pillow energy. So it's ugly, man, but this is a former president of the U.S. saying we should have done a coup, openly saying that, openly saying you better storm the streets if people come after me for crimes I actually committed. So buckle up. It's going to get ugly. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Ukraine. We got the Ukraine, uh, a new poll on Ukraine and Russia. We got that and much, much more. Stay right there, everybody.
We are back, bitch. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. <clears throat> welcome back to the show. Let's continue. Still got a bunch of stuff to get to. Talk about the peace deal, potential peace deal with Russia. So there is a standoff and a crisis happening um, in Russia and Ukraine at the moment. And I want to go ahead and show you guys. There's a new poll that just came out. Actually, before I get to the poll, let me just tell you the backstory. You have the lowest number I read was 10,000 Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. Highest number I read was 100,000 on the border. I don't know how the, how the range varies that much. It seems like it should be pretty easy to tell 10,000 or 100,000. But either way, there's a, a standoff right now, and the fear is that Vladimir Putin is going to invade Ukraine and basically just take the areas that are ethnically Russian. And this would be, you know, the reason why this is all coming to a head now is because the West has been uh, open about the fact that they eventually want Ukraine to join NATO, and Russia views that as an act of aggression because NATO was not supposed to uh, inch any closer towards Russia's border, and it has a number of times since the 1990s. So we're sort of stuck in this standoff now. We all remember Russia invaded Georgia in the Bush years. It invaded Crimea in uh, 2014 when Obama was president, and now the fear is they're just going to take basically a large swath of uh, eastern Ukraine. So... The U.S. is currently engaged in diplomacy with Russia in negotiations. Uh, they're trying to work out some sort of a deal, like in terms of, hey, you guys don't invade, and we'll have a conversation about weapons and where they're placed and, you know, if they can be pointed at you or, or, or not. And, you know, Russia's basically saying, like, no, you have to uh, pull, have NATO basically pull out of no more expansion for NATO, and also, you know, withdraw uh, some of the troops as they're currently situated in some of the other states. So there's a standoff going on right now. The media is, is talking about this issue nonstop. So it would be interesting to see a poll on, well, with, all, with the media talking about this nonstop, where are the American people at? Well, now we have the answer. Everybody take a look at this. This is from Data for Progress. Voters support the Biden administration striking a deal with Russia to avoid war over Ukraine. Here's how they word it. The United States and Russia have recently conducted talks about Russia's aggression towards Ukraine, but those talks have so far not succeeded in reducing tensions. Some argue that the United States must pull all diplomatic options on, put all diplomatic options on the table and be prepared to make concessions to Russia in order to reduce tensions and avoid war. Others argue that meeting any of Russia's demands will allow their actions to go unchecked and that only forceful tactics like sanctions and military action are appropriate. Based on what you know, would you support or oppose the Biden administration striking a diplomatic deal with Russia to avoid war over Ukraine? So here are the results. 58% of uh, all likely voters support a deal. That's plus 29. Only 29% oppose a deal with Russia. Um, Democrats, 71% support a deal, plus 54. Uh, Independents, 51% support a deal, plus 18, because only 33% oppose. And then among Republicans, 46% support a deal, and that's plus six, because only 40% oppose a deal. So in other words, across the board, the American people are like, look, we got we to gotta reach some sort of a deal. Now, my suspicion is, my guess is, because P- 
people know that Russia is a nuclear-armed state. We're nuclear-armed. Russia is nuclear-armed. Do we really want to get in some sort of a conflict, like actual hot war conflict, with a nuclear-armed power? That can devolve very, very quickly. And yes, the stakes are as high as you imagine they are. You know, it's a terrifying prospect to, to go to war with Russia. So people across the board sort of realize we have to do something. We have to find a way to make peace. Because now here's the counterargument. And obviously I don't buy this counterargument, but I'll give you the counterargument. The counterargument is, look, if you give an inch, they take a foot. If you give a foot, they take a mile. If you give a mile, they take 100 miles. So this is just like with, um, you know, Hitler taking the Sudetenland and then Neville, Neville Chamberlain making a deal. Like, you could have, whatever, the Rhineland of the Sudetenland, and, and, but no further. And he comes back, Neville Chamberlain famously waving the piece of paper and saying, see, we made a deal. And then what happened? There was no appeasing Hitler because he was unappeasable because he had global uh, world domination aspirations. And... So Neville Chamberlain, in retrospect, looked like a total idiot, and you had Winston Churchill, who originally was viewed as like this blowhard, who was you know, a war hawk, who then he eventually looked like a genius because he was like, look, there's no appeasing this guy. So that's the counter-argument. The counter-argument is you can't give anything because then they're going to they're gonna, uh, not agree to the deal and go further. So, but the reason why I don't agree with that is very simple. Not everybody's Adolf Hitler. Not everybody has world you know, domination aspirations. You know, I think Putin in his heart of hearts, did he despise the breakup of the Soviet Union and those post-Soviet buffer states? Uh, I, yeah, I, I think he did. I think he thought it was, you know, he was in the KGB. He thought it was besmirching the Soviet Union or Russia and the Russian people. And so it was embarrassing on the global stage for that to happen. But Vladimir Putin also knows that to reconstitute the entire Soviet Union, get all those post-Soviet states back into Russia, it's not going to happen. He knows that. So even in his heart of hearts, if he wants to reconstitute the old Soviet Union, um, the political reality, I'm sure, has set in that it, you're not, you're not going to get back Belarus, for example. Uh, but I think the reason why Ukraine is a sticking point for him is because, say, similar to Crimea, it's ethnically Russian, and that population sort of views Russia more favorably and does not feel um, like the ethnic Ukrainians or like they're one with the ethnic Ukrainians. And look, the, keep it real, Ukraine was made in the 1990s. And it's sort of a fake state. The, the Western powers did the same thing there as the Western powers did in the Middle East, where they drew these fake borders. So now you have like Iraq is, is split between the Kurds and the Sunnis and the Shias, and it's ungovernable because these people... They don't agree, and they don't feel like there's any national identity. I feel like Ukraine is a similar thing. The ethnic Ukrainians feel Ukrainian, but the ethnic Russians don't really feel that way. And Vladimir Putin views the encroachment of NATO further and further closer to his border as an act of aggression from the West. So I think a deal is possible, um, but that doesn't mean that Russia is good and they're blameless. Um, and it doesn't mean the West is good or they're blameless. I think basically everybody thinks they're acting defensively as they're actually acting offensively. That's my general view of the situation. But cooler heads need to prevail because the stakes are really high. So there should be some sort of a deal made. There should be, you know, some sort of a promise that uh, or actual treaty where NATO doesn't expand any further. 
And there are certain things that you do have as leverage over Russia, if need be. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is currently approved, you could pull that away and have the U.S. give our uh, natural gas to Germany, and you can subsidize it to the point where it's just as cheap as the Russian gas would have been. They're, you know, arming Ukraine, even though that is viewed as a direct act of hostility towards Russia. If you agree to a deal where Ukraine is never part of NATO, um, then I wouldn't have a problem with arming Ukraine if Ukraine still feels like Russia is a threat and they can protect themselves if they're armed. So I do think weapons, arming is on the table. Um, The Nord Stream 2 pipeline is on the table. But in terms of the demands of Russia, some of them are reasonable and I would meet those demands and have some sort of a peace deal and see what happens. Uh, But the American people clearly agree with me on this, and they don't buy the hyperbolic notion that Putin is just Hitler. And so we'll see what happens from here, but I really hope that the Biden administration is is being reasonable about this. And I don't know if they are, because there's even talk now of some retaliation against North Korea for their recent missile test. It's like, okay, well, how many countries do you want to, you know, raise tensions with and get us closer to a war with at the moment? You would just want to have like eight countries that were eight countries that are even bigger deals than like the war in Iraq that we're like this close to war with now. Is that what you want to do? It doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Next. So Jordan Peterson tweeted something the other day that is uh, hilarious. So he said this. Let me show you. Talk to Senator Ted Cruz's key investors, in parentheses, not donors, yesterday in Fort Worth, suggested that Republicans could offer young people the sustaining meaning of responsibility, among other better stories. And then he tags Ted Cruz. And see, it says there on the left, investor retreat, truth and courage pact, pack. It's hilarious that Ted Cruz calls his pack the Truth and Courage Pack. Truth and Courage. Ted Cruz. This is the guy who colossally cucked himself to Donald Trump after Donald Trump said his dad killed JFK and he wouldn't spill the beans on his wife, basically calling Cruz's wife ugly. And then Cruz was asked by the media, okay, but will you support him if he's a nominee? And Cruz wouldn't answer and said, I'm going to be the nominee. I'm Ted Cruz. And then, of course... Uh, after going to the RNC and saying, like, vote your conscience, he then uh, phone banked for Donald Trump after his donors say, hey, who do you work for? You work for us. Now you better go do what we want you to do. So there's a famous picture of him sitting there with his cut's face phone banking for Donald Trump after getting obliterated by him in the debates. So um, there's a number of things to say about this. Nobody is less truthful and less courageous than uh, Ted Cruz. I love how the fact that Peterson says his key investors, not donors, what, what are you talking about? What's the difference? Key investors? Was he starting some sort of private company? You're investing in the private company. And by the way, you don't think that would, impl- that would affect how he legislates? Of course it would affect how he legislates. By the way, Ted Cruz right now is involved in a, in a case that's working its way through the court system. It may even be going to the Supreme Court. I don't remember what I read about that. I may have read that. Um, but the case is he wants even more money in politics. He wants even more money in politics. So the idea that this, you know, not donors. So in other words, Peterson's trying to be like, look, it, it's not corrupt. It's not corrupt. Ted Cruz is one of the most corrupt politicians that there is. This is a guy who has openly argued that if a billionaire 
is donating to a politician, they have free speech rights to do it. So if a billionaire wants to give millions of dollars to a politician, Cruz says there's nothing wrong with that at all. Not only is that not corruption, that's not even the appearance of corruption. That's just First Amendment protected free speech. It most certainly is not free speech. It most certainly is corruption and bribery. So he's one of the most corrupt people there is. So anyway, Peterson trying to cover his ass by saying that is hilarious. Like, no, this is one of the most odious politicians in the country, and you're meeting up with him now. But there's a more important point. The more important point is, Peterson's talking to Cruz about, we need to teach young people the sustaining meaning of responsibility, among other better stories. So the stories part is, you know, how Jordan Peterson's obsessed with narratives and stories, and, you know, you got to look at yourself as the hero in the story and try your best to live honorably and, um, you know, to tell the truth or at least don't lie and stand up with your back straight and clean your room and all this stuff. So the narrative thing is classic Jordan Peterson, obsessed with stories. But telling Ted Cruz that you need to sell personal responsibility hey, Jordan, that's not the job of a politician. The job of a politician is to legislate on behalf of the people and represent the voters. So in other words, if the voters say, hey, Ted Cruz, we would like a living wage out here, please. We work full time and don't make enough money to survive. Could you help us out on that? That's Ted Cruz's job. Ted Cruz's job is hey, man, we have 45,000 people dying every year because they don't have basic health care. Can we get some universal health coverage, please? That's his job. His job is to make laws and legislate the will of the people in what's supposed to be a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. This is just a total category error. And if anything, what politicians do when they stress the personal responsibility angle of stuff, is them dodging their own personal responsibility to do their job as a politician properly, to implement laws for the people. So he's, ironically, he would be dodging his own personal responsibility if he just goes out there and lectures people about personal responsibility. Look, guys, don't get it twisted. I I have a a guilty pleasure. My guilty pleasure is I love the motivational speaking stuff. I do. I love the self-help guru stuff. I love the, you know, the arguments about, you know, show some discipline, get your ass out of bed, go do the things that you got to do. Here are the reasons why that's a good idea. I like that stuff probably even more than the next guy. Sometimes I like corny and cheesy ass quotes more than the next guy. So I have, I have nothing against that at all. In fact, I think there's this vacuum on the left where nobody gives you that stuff while also making leftist arguments in terms of public policy. Like, I want the left to be sufficient in the art of personal improvement, while also not abandoning the commitment to the community and better public policy. So there's a, I support that stuff strongly. What I do not support is corrupt Republican politicians or Democratic politicians lecturing people about personal responsibility as they destroy the country, because they represent their donors, they represent billionaires, they represent corporations, as the country burns, as everybody's having a rough go of it at the moment. So this is just simply a category error, man. I mean, the fact that Jordan Peterson doesn't understand that this is not the job of a politician, 
The job, and by the way, also, nobody likes politicians. Have you seen the numbers? Have you seen how, you know, Congress always has an approval rating between like 7% and 25%? Nobody likes these people. Nobody likes Ted Cruz. I'm sure his numbers are underwater. So in, in a weird way, even if Ted Cruz took the advice, it would almost like besmirch the message itself. Because is this unlikable, uncharismatic guy making an argument for a concept that's generally an okay and decent concept, it would like undermine that concept in a way. But again, the most important point is, for the love of God, that's not your job, Ted Cruz. And anytime you are lecturing about personal responsibility, that's a, that's a moment wasted when you could be talking about legislation that would actually help the people. But he doesn't, he's not in favor of legislation that helps the people at all, not even close, not even a little bit. So, I mean, think about it, guys. Let's say every politician in America took Jordan Peterson's advice and lectured people about personal responsibility. How insufferable would that be? Scumbags ruining the country, and at the same time, they're finger-wagging at you and telling you to get your shit together. How about you get your shit together? How about that? How about that? Unbelievable. Unbelievable, man. Imagine telling a politician, hey, you need to push the, the notion of personal responsibility. That would be a total diversion and deflection from the fact that these politicians aren't doing their own jobs well and they're not representing the people. Look, if you want to get into personal responsibility stuff, then go do that. Go be a motivational speaker. Go have your own podcast where you argue for these sorts of narratives all the time. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But you can't be in a position where your job is to represent the community, and then you turn around and lecture people about their own individual failings. See, that's the thing, is it personalizes broader systemic problems, and that's not okay. When you pretend like, for example, like poverty is just a choice. You're just lazy. You just don't have any discipline. It's a personal moral failing on your part. That is fundamentally not true. Again, to go back to the original point, minimum wage is not a living wage in this country. You can work full time and not make enough money to survive. Is that their individual fault? Are they just not trying hard enough? Are they not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps enough? It's just not accurate. So, look. I don't know what to tell you guys. These are conversations that we were going to have with Jordan Peterson to his face. He was supposed to come on Crystal Kyle and Friends at the last minute, as you all know. He dropped out, said he has to prepare for his month-long speaking tour. Then, by the way, he went on Joe Rogan after he said, we're not doing any more podcasts. I've got to prepare for my tour and rest and everything. Um, so we're going to have these conversations with him to his face, but he had other things in mind. Now, in theory, he's supposed to come on in uh, June or July. We'll see if that happens. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I hope it does, because even though a lot of these intellectual dark web types love to talk about how they're in favor of free discourse and open dialogue and freedom of speech and reasonable disagreements, oftentimes when they have conversations, it's kind of a circle jerk, and everybody's agreeing with everybody. Well, there's some reasonable pushback. Um, that would be good for the culture and the broader dialogue. So let's hope it happens, because there's a lot to say. All right, next. This is one of those stories that if there was any justice in the world, it would be a huge story. And a bunch of different media outlets would be pumping this out, and there'd be sustained outrage over it. But unfortunately, we don't live in a reasonable world, 
and uh, the, the left propaganda machine isn't nearly as effective and efficient as the right-wing one. So you're only going to hear about this here. Let me go ahead and throw this up on the screen for you. Judd Legum says, more, a Mississippi mayor is withholding $110,000 of funding from the Madison County library system until its library purges books with LGBTQ themes. The mayor calls the books, including an essay collection by Elton John and others, quote, homosexual materials. And you can see there, um, the queer Bible is one of the ones that he's demanding be pulled. So let me give you... Let me give you some more on this. The person who's doing it is Ridgeland Mayor Gene McGee. Quote, he explained his opposition to what he called homosexual materials in the library, that it went against his Christian beliefs, and that he would not release the money as long as the materials were there. So one of the people who um, is head of the library said, quote, he told me that the library can serve whoever we wanted, but that he only serves the great Lord above. At a meeting, attendees asked Bob Sanders, counsel for the library board, if the mayor had any legal authority to override the contract with the library system and the decision of the alderman. So in other words, they had already approved this money to go towards the library. So they asked, um, you know, an attorney for the library, and the attorney, quote, said flatly, uh, no. So he has no legal ability to do that, to do this. So what happened is, after this was picked up by local papers, um, and there was pushback, then this guy, look at how Weasley this is. He says, we're holding the money right now because we found a large number of citizens who have complained about displays of sexual, whatever you want to call it, content. We're just responding to those citizens' complaints, and that's the position we're in. So first of all, it, it's not even true that if you, know, if you do a poll or something, that the majority would say, get, you know, get rid of these. But beyond that, that wouldn't matter even if it was true. Why? Because this is the whole point of a constitutional right. A constitutional right. So you have a, you know, a right to look at those materials if you want to look at those materials. By the way, you don't want to look at it, don't look at it. Don't go to the Bible and get, don't go to the Bible. Don't go to the library and get the queer Bible. But this is, look, this is the equivalent of what? This is censorship. This is modern day censorship. This is modern day book burning. This is conservatives with a conservative sensibility saying we would like to ban things that we don't personally like. Now, again, I go back to what I said before. Whenever there's an instance of some authoritarian left college kids with pink hair shouting down a conservative speaker or trying to get a conservative speaker banned from some talk at a college, it makes national news. And Fox News talks about it, and Newsmax does, and One American News Network does, and Ben Shapiro does, and Stephen Crowder does, and everybody under the sun is all systems go, the left hates free speech. They hate free speech. They hate the First Amendment. But when you have a, a conservative mayor literally banning books from the library that he doesn't like, crickets, crickets, there is no um, centralized, efficient left-wing reaction where we all accurately point out, I think you guys are hostile to free speech and hostile to the First Amendment. And by the way, look, keep it real. There are many instances where the right screams that the left hates free speech where they are sort of misstating it from a legal perspective. Like when, you know, when we talk about 
a private company trying to moderate their content or deplatform somebody. Now, look, I'm, I'm against that, but it also is just legally the case that that has nothing to do with the First Amendment. Now, I wish it did. I would like to expand the First Amendment and, and treat all the social media companies as public utilities. But as of right now, legally, it has nothing to do with the First Amendment. This is an instance of right-wing censorship that is literally anti-First Amendment. This does involve the law. This does involve the Constitution. And again, I hear crickets. I don't hear anybody talking about this. I had to go to, you know, a local paper, Mississippi thing, to read it. So credit to Judd Legum for bringing this to my attention. But guys, I've always told you, I hate it when people follow the right down the rabbit hole and they play the, the same game the right does where it's like, whatever these guys are for, I'm against. And so if the right makes an argument like, oh, the left is against free speech, then the left, you know, the left is like, well, yeah, and we're right to feel this way. No, that was never the response. The response was always to highlight that we actually are principled in support of free speech, unlike you guys. You guys only talk about how you believe in free speech when it's some right-winger who's experiencing consequences. But when it's some left-winger, you don't say anything, or if anything, you support it. We need to actually be the principled ones. Because that's more appealing. When you have principles, when you have convictions, and you apply them regardless, that's much more appealing. And it's also, I think, the correct policy. It's like Donald Trump screams about you know, free speech on social media, and they're censoring, and they're banning, and they're deplatforming, and I'm against that. So I'm creating my own social media platform, Truth Social. And then what happens? What happens with Truth Social? What happens? They're already banning stuff and censoring stuff. They're planning for it with the launch. They have these AI bot content moderators that'll take down anything that's sexually explicit or anything that's trolling or anything that's like, you know, from the left that's trying to get under the skin of truth social. So they immediately flip on the principle. The MyPillow guy, oh, I'm going to start my own free speech thing, but there's no cursing, no taking the Lord's name in vain, no sexual material, no besmirching the Bible. It's like, what? You don't support it. You just want to be the censors. Well, look, I'm here to tell you. I don't just want to be the censor. I just don't want the censorship. If they were going, and guess what, guys? If they were going to, if some lefties wanted to go to the public library and take all the books that are out of there from the right-wing commentators, you know, Mark Levin, Michael Savage, Ben Shapiro, whatever, I would be against it. I'd be against it and I'd still be talking about it. I'd still be talking about it today saying this is the wrong policy. It's not right. But again, there's no efficient left-wing machine that can highlight this and pump it out and point out, look, man, the right is so censorious. They're literally banning books with stuff they don't like. And in this case, it's LGBTQ-themed books. Look, take your religious beliefs and you do whatever you want with them, but don't you dare impose it on everybody else. Because I actually believe in free speech and free expression. And um, to have these books in the library is obviously the right thing. Whether you agree with it, disagree with it, whatever, it's obviously the right thing. You want to live in a society where you can go and look up whatever. And uh, these people don't want to live in that society. They want to micromanage, and they want to, they want to rig the system to m- mesh with their own cultural beliefs. And don't get it twisted. It's all their, it's their economic beliefs. It's their cultural beliefs. It's every belief you can imagine, which is why they want to bias the, the school system in their favor. You know, that like a patriotic education where what they want to do is highlight all the good things about America, even things that are not good, but they think they're good, and either downplay or don't talk at all 
about the bad parts of America. They want to rig it. They want to rig it to fit their narrative. Ironically, as they scream and cry that the left wants to rig stuff to fit their narrative. Well, I'm not calling for Ben Shapiro or, or uh, Mark Levin or Michael Savage or Sean Hannity or whatever to have their books banned. But you're literally, this mayor is literally withholding over $100,000 that's allocated to go to the library because he personally disagrees with these books. Call it what it is, man. This is tyrannical. This is dictatorial. And it's completely unacceptable. And for the love of God, I hope other media outlets pick up this story. But I'm not going to hold my breath because they're not going to. All right, let's talk about um, this insane extremist poll. Let me show you guys a new poll that came out, which shows the further radicalization of Trump's base. So Mediaite says, jaw-dropping poll shows only 17% of Republicans would vote for someone who believes Biden won. 17%. That's it. According to Yahoo, only 17% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents say they, quote, would consider voting for a candidate who accurately characterizes Biden's victory as legitimate, and a whopping 59% that they definitely would not vote for any candidate who admits that Biden won the 2020 election fair and square. Uh, The pollsters say this is already having an effect. These numbers underscore the degree to which Trump's big lie, claiming Biden cheated his way into the White House, a falsehood that three-quarters of Trump voters, 74%, now believe, has become a litmus test for the entire GOP. Crowding out other issues and strengthening Trump's grip on the party ahead of the 2022 midterms, for his part, Trump has made it clear that supporting his election fabrications is key to his own personal endorsement. Indeed, the former president is backing primary candidates against state officials who bucked his attempts to overturn the election. So... There was another uh, YouGov poll released this week that found only 25% of Republicans believe Biden won the election versus 62% of all Americans who said the same. That's incredible. So 62% of Americans accurately recognize Biden won. 25% of Republicans believe Biden legitimately won the election. Only a quarter of Republicans have the non-insane belief. There, okay, there's so many things about this that are both fascinating and scary. But the main one is we, we've never seen a situation where a party was openly this radical and extreme and fringe while still currently being an overwhelming favorite. Because all the polls on the midterms are that the Republicans are going to clean house. And um, at the same time, they have these just wildly out-of-bounds beliefs, just verifiably, provably, provably, demonstrably untrue, and obviously so. I mean, we have the 60 court cases that over the election, and Biden won virtually every single one of those cases. The only one that Trump won was over some procedural nonsense that didn't change the outcome at all. You have the Arizona audit, where not only did Biden win, but he won by more than what the original count showed. I don't know what more evidence these people need, but it's not about the evidence. They have what is effectively a cultish or religious like belief. It's a fundamentalist belief. And uh, it's a scary situation that these guys are the favorites, even though they have these extreme beliefs, which just shows you 
I'm not taking away from the brainwashing that's happened on the right, which is evil and wrong and terrible, and they have responsibility for that. They have personal agency. They're responsible for that. But at the same time, you get the sense that if the Democrats just did a half-decent job governing, the Democrats would be the overwhelming favorite going into the midterms and going into the 2024 election. If Joe Biden just cut another stimulus check, sign an executive order that expands health care to everybody in the country during a, a, a pandemic and a health crisis, you know, take three big programs and build back better and pass those in a universal sense, get true universal pre-K, get uh, true paid vacation time by law, get another round of the child tax credit, and then hit the campaign trail and brag about that like nobody's business. If the Democrats just did a half-decent job, if Biden legalizes marijuana through executive order or abolishes student loan debt, just do two of these things that I'm talking about, you get the sense the Democrats would be an overwhelming favor, but they're not because they didn't do that stuff, and they're feckless and weak and pathetic, and they can't get anything through. So it, it, is, a, it is actually a scary time in American history for that reason. Not only is everything crumbling around us, and you, know, you have climate change, and you have the pandemic, and you have a stock market that's probably going to crash, and when it crashes, it's going to hurt everybody in the process. You've got all these negative things. And at the same time, you have a party that's poised to win overwhelmingly that has a belief like this. I mean, how do you even respond to that? How do you respond to a poll that says 17% of Republicans would vote for somebody who believes Biden won? So just acknowledging reality is a non-starter for Republicans. So you're going to have the further radicalization of the right. The only silver lining is this. The reason Trump won in 2016 was because he was like pseudo-populist and an outsider. But he's now gotten to the point where there's no more fake populism left in him. None. He's all angry, ornery, Fox News grandpa, One American News Network grandpa, Newsmax grandpa. And he is gonna, he's going to lose normies. With this stuff, he's losing normies, no doubt about it. If you're telling 62% of the country they're wrong about something as obvious as Biden won the election, that has consequences. So don't know what's going to happen moving forwards. If they keep leaning into this, that's going to be a problem for them. That just, it gets you more to the point of Democrats, for the love of God, just do two things or something that's going to improve Americans' lives. I mean, you should do way more than that. You should do the entire agenda. Biden should break out that executive order pen and start cracking skulls and mansion and cinema. But um, it really is the worst political situation I've ever seen in my life. I think it, this, this feels even worse than, you know, the 2016 race between uh, Hillary and, and Trump, like it feels we've somehow devolved even further from then, which I didn't think was possible. All right, next. All right, guys. So um, I want to show you guys a video here. This is from More Perfect Union. Before I get into it, let me just say, and I don't have any sort of sponsorship or anything with More Perfect Union, but I love their work so much that I'm just going to advocate, go and subscribe to More Perfect Union on YouTube, go and follow them on Twitter. You're not going to regret it. More Perfect Union is doing what CNN is supposed to be doing. They're basically covering like all labor stuff around the country in incredible detail. They do a really fantastic job. So anyway, here we have a video from More Perfect Union. It's, it exposes this dirty trick that corporations have just been able to get away with. Uh, in, in the modern era. It's they advertise fake pay rates 
to hire people, then they basically, um, at the last minute, sort of expose to them, like, that's not what we actually pay. And it's very deceptive. It's very misleading. It's very gross. It's exactly what I'd expect from corporate, uh, corporate um, America. Let's take a look, and then I'll respond. I asked him how much I could expect to be paid. He was like, well, our starting wage is about 10 bucks an hour. And I said, well, that's a real shocker because when I applied for the job, the posting said it was 16. And he did one of those <laughs> kind of laughs. And he was like, well, we don't really pay that here. Putting down the highest wage that you offer as the hourly salary for all positions is just false advertisement. It was really a rock and a hard place situation. I didn't have a choice. I had to take the work. just um, lying 
and wasting your time and trying to hook people in to accept the job anyway. And oftentimes that's what happens. So, you know, advertise for $15 an hour, $18 an hour, $20 an hour, $25 an hour, and then you go in and you find out actually those are more senior positions and uh, we don't have that available. Or they'll pretend like you're going to get that wage and at the last moment say, uh, oh, you don't have the credentials that we need, so we're willing to work with you, but we're going to start you a little bit lower. Maybe you'll work your way up. And then usually they don't even end up working their way up. The whole plan from the beginning was to lie and get them in and try to hook them into taking the job. And um, look, this is deceptive. This is false advertising. This is uh, the wrong thing to do. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking to myself, how is this allowed? How is this, I mean, maybe it's illegal. Uh, I don't know if it is. But uh, maybe certain states crack down harder on stuff like this. But how is this allowed anywhere in today's day and age? And you get the sense, guys, there is no captain of the ship. There is no cop on the beat when it comes to corporate crimes. You know, that's the whole point of, like, rampant deregulation. It's, eh, whatever, the free market will sort of work stuff out, let them do whatever. But this is what we get when there's no cop on the beat. I think we need to have corporate cops, corporate police, a whole new uh, government agency that's whole purpose. Is, and maybe this, to one extent or another, is what the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was supposed to do, and uh, they did for a little bit before they were absolutely gutted by uh, Republicans. But the whole idea of corporate cops should be you go after corporations. Now, by the way, I would pay them well so that they don't feel enticed by any sort of potential bribes coming from the corporations. You pay them well, and then also maybe pay them uh, you know, some sort of commission for every time they catch a corporation – uh, breaking a law, and so then they're incentivized to do their job and do it well. So give them a good base pay, give them some uh, commission on top of it every time they knock a corporation for doing something. And in a world that made sense, we already would have this corporate cop division, and it already would be uh, fully funded with them doing a phenomenal job. But instead, we're all sitting around here as we're all watching this room, wait, is this even illegal? Or is this just totally legal for them to do? The things that corporations get away with versus average Joes and Janes is, it's astounding. It's mind-boggling what they get away with. So uh, I'm sure people, guys, in the comment section, go ahead. Tell everybody what, what horror stories you have when it comes to, uh, you know, your job hunt and when it comes to how they lie and how they mislead or tell your stories of horrendous bosses who get away with stuff that they shouldn't even be allowed to get away with. Because this stuff is rampant. I said it before, I'll say it again. We have a massive contradiction at the heart of this country. We, uh, we espouse the virtues of political democracy while also supporting economic dictatorship. Because that's what free market capitalism is. Notice the language. When you say, oh, free market, it sounds so official. It sounds so amazing. It sounds... You know, like, you embrace freedom if you support free market capitalism. But no, free market capitalism is you have all these corporations, and they're structured like little rigid tyrannies. You have the owner, and then you have the manager underneath the owner, and then you have the employees, and whatever that owner says, and whatever that manager says, goes. And you just have to listen. You don't have a say. You're expendable, you know. Your word means nothing. You're just a... a, a cog in a machine. That's it. 
And so how we can pretend like we're all about political democracy while actively opposing vigorously economic democracy is insane. But this is what you get when you have economic dictatorship, little rigid tyrannies that uh, run the economy. This is what you get. You get lies. And uh, they treat workers like shit. And that needs to stop. We, I mean, uh, answers are obvious. You need more regulation. You need corporate cops. You need to actually enforce these things. You need uh, a living wage. You need the PRO Act. You need unions. I mean, it'd be great if we copied some of the Scandinavian countries and the default is that you're in a union. Because then workers would be treated much, much better. We know that as a matter of fact. I mean, we've seen the reports uh, coming out of the so-called right-to-work states. The workers make less on average with worse benefits. Great job from More Perfect Union here. Guys, I'm serious. Go subscribe to them. Go follow them on Twitter because they do – I mean, they report on stuff that they should be reporting on CNN and in mainstream media. But, of course, you're not going to see stuff like this on CNN or mainstream media because they're not representing the interests of the working class. They're representing the interests of the donor class. They're representing the corporate advertisers who pay them a tremendous amount of money. So you're not going to get these very harshly critical segments of those corporations. Okay, next. So there's a, another great video here from More Perfect Union talking about the drug war. Uh, what they did is they went and talked to people who are serving either extremely long sentences for nonviolent drug offenses or even serving life for nonviolent drug offenses. They're going to highlight some of their stories here. This is really powerful stuff. Let's take a look. Joe Biden, fucking fix this. In the mid-90s and early 2000s, I was working on a career in the music industry, working with industry legends like Snoop Dogg and Tupac Shakur's recording group, when I was approached by a confidential informant who purchased $900 worth of cannabis from me on three occasions. I was prosecuted federally and was sentenced to a 55 years mandatory minimum as a first-time offender. We were one of the first dispensaries in the country. We received over two decades in prison for a nonviolent cannabis offense. I'm currently serving my 14th year in prison, and I have six left. At 19, I was charged with simple possession of marijuana in Mississippi, and I got sentenced to a, a year in jail and five years probation. At the end of the five-year sentence, I was picked up for conspiracy to traffic marijuana. My full sentence is 60 years, and this is my 12-year lockdown. After I was released from prison, I decided to help to get the people I left behind out of prison. There's a number of people in there whose sentences are more ridiculous than mine, and they don't have celebrities and political figures full form like I did. Currently, there are roughly 2,700 people serving federal prison time for a nonviolent cannabis offense. There are murderers in prison and rapists and terrorists and everything who are serving a fraction of what I was sentenced to. Biden was running for office, he made a promise. I think we should decriminalize marijuana, period. And I think everyone, anyone who has a record should be let out of jail, their record's expunged, it be completely zeroed out. So we're going to hold him to his promise. Especially right now, when we have this two-tiered system of justice where 
if you're if you're wealthy and if you you know you're an older white male, you can profit from the cannabis industry. While many uh, people of color and people from poor neighborhoods are still sitting in prison for doing the same thing. My name is Kyle Kazan, and I'm the co-founder, CEO, and chairman of Glasshouse Brands. Glasshouse Brands is a very large cannabis company that's publicly traded on the OTC and on the New York Exchange in Canada. Are we a legal business? Yes, we're a legal business in the state of California, where we operate. We are illegal federally, like every single business that operates in the United States, because the United States still has cannabis, oddly enough, as a Schedule One drug. Watching people cash in on the legal marijuana market while we're incarcerated is one of the most egregious injustices. Luke was running a medicinal marijuana dispensary in Modesto, California, in 2004. He had a park. We followed California law to the letter. We were licensed by the city. We had a permit from the state. We paid 100% of our taxes, both state and federal taxes. George Bush was the president, and they were prosecuting marijuana business. They didn't recognize California's medical marijuana laws, just like federal law does not recognize the state laws in existence today. But what's happened since Luke was prosecuted are a number of things. The Obama administration instructed prosecutors not to prosecute individuals who are following state law. In 2014, Congress has introduced a rider that precludes the DOJ from using funds to prosecute businesses or individuals that are operating within the state's medical marijuana laws. And Luke falls within that guideline. And so today, not only would Luke not be prosecuted, he couldn't be prosecuted. And he's still sitting in prison. Hey, Rand, one dispensary. I'm sitting in one right here in Los Angeles. My company has numerous we're opening up more. Parker Coleman, he has a very egregious case. He is currently serving a 60-year sentence. He has 50, 50 years to go. Nonviolent cannabis crime. I can go and buy shares. And we stop now. How am I still in here like that? That can't be that hypocritical like that's too blatant. Joe Biden can end this today, not tomorrow, not this week. He could end it today. He has the ability to free every single federal nonviolent drug offender, every single one. He can do it. He's not doing it. Not only is he not doing that, he's not signing the executive order to take marijuana off the Schedule 1 drug list. I mean, look, even if he just moved it to Schedule 2, it'd be a hell of a lot better. But he's not doing that. Really, what he should do is just take it off the list completely or put it in the lowest category, but he's not going to do that. This is a guy who was responsible in part for writing the crime bill, which cracked down on nonviolent drug offenses, which locked up uh, an entire generation of young black and brown people primarily. That's what he did, and he still hasn't atoned for that in any serious way. He said he was going to decriminalize it in the debates. He hasn't done it. He hasn't done it. He could fix it right now, right now. And by the way, geez, you want to talk about the political angle of this? I mean, that would be a bump in his abysmal approval rating overnight if he did it. He's not doing it. Now, you see these direct firsthand stories of people who are impacted by this. It is astounding that we have a situation where some people can be a CEO of a marijuana company and other people can be locked up for years over a small amount of possession. And it's all just all different states. You know, federal government can fix this right now by Biden signing an executive order today, and that's it. The nightmare is over. The nightmare would be over. So I want to give you some more information on what's going on with the drug war. Every 25 seconds, an American is arrested for drug possession. Every 25 seconds. You want to talk about an injustice? By the way, what would I call this policy? It's authoritarian. This is authoritarianism. You have or should have the personal freedom to put in your body what you want to put in your body if you're not hurting anybody else. I think that's 
basic freedom. They say no, and every 25 seconds, an American is arrested for drug possession. There are 456,000 Americans serving time for a drug charge. 1.15 million Americans are on probation or parole for a drug charge. When you look at the cost of the drug war over the years, it's been more than a trillion dollars since 1971. More than a trillion. Weed legalization would save $7.7 billion a year if you, you know, stop the massive apparatus that you need to enforce these laws. Um, but then also, if you legalize it, the tax revenue would yield $6 billion a year. $6 billion. So that would leave us with $13.7 billion. For that money, you could uh, fund more than six weeks of paid vacation for all Americans. Just by doing the right policy. It's the morally correct thing to do, and it's the fiscally correct thing to do. And that's obvious. And Joe Biden's not doing it. Again, look, credit to More Perfect Union for highlighting these stories, these personal stories. I'm more of like a macro picture guy. I like to talk about numbers and data and, and macro trends. But uh, look, fact of the matter is, I don't think most people fall in that category. I think most people are more, they're more taken in by stories, by personal stories, by narratives. And this is More Perfect Union doing some great on-the-ground work, talking to people directly impacted by this. And you can put real faces to the trauma and to the injustice. And so this has to end. This has to end now. Free every single nonviolent drug offender. Shit, apologize to them. Pay them some money for being unfairly locked up and legalize marijuana. There, there are only upsides that come from it, and I sincerely mean that. All right, y'all, final story of the day. Joe Biden, um, of course, has been dodging left-wing media, progressive media, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and there's nothing new about this. This is every Democratic president does it. Uh, but Politico wrote an article on it. It's kind of interesting. Let me throw this up there for you. The title is, Can Pod Save Biden? Jesus. It's a play on Pod Save America, which is really more of a pro-Democrat podcast, not a leftist podcast. They say, months before Joe Biden took office, the folks at liberal-oriented crooked media offered him a small piece of press relations advice. Quote, develop closer ties with progressive outlets, they wrote. Give them scoops and access and grow their audiences and influence the way Donald Trump's team has nurtured fringe rags like Newsmax and One American News. So they go on in the piece to explore the question, hey, why hasn't Biden uh, really snuggled up to progressive media, which could have been like an arm for his administration to push the narrative and to gin up support and everything? Now, I, I have an obvious answer to that, but... Before I get to that, let's talk about the right. The way the right ecosystem works is pretty straightforward. Whether it's Stephen Crowder or Ben Shapiro or any so-called you know, new media right-wingers, they're really just the slightly edgier version of everything that's on Fox News or Newsmax or One American News. There's really not much of an ideological distinction between the new media outlets on the right and mainstream media outlets on the right. They believe the same things, they make similar arguments, they generally cheerlead for the Republican Party. And so what you see is now Fox News is the number one news network, I use that term loosely, and the, the so-called new media outlets on the right, they're also very popular on the right. I mean, they, they pull numbers, Shapiro, Crowder, you name them. And so 
Republicans use that to their advantage. I mean, Ted Cruz has a show with some the Daily Wire third stringer, whatever his name is, Michael Knowles. Hilarious, that guy. He's such an actor. Um, and they, they sit down with interviews with these people. I mean, Candace Owens recently talked to Donald Trump. And so you have this mutually beneficial ecosystem where they're all uh, pumping each other up. They're all making the same argument. But here's the difference. Now, you don't have that on the left. Why? Well, it's very simple. There's only one outlet in the country that is flat out rah-rah Democratic Party, rah-rah Joe Biden. That's MSNBC. Maybe CNN is, too, to a slightly lesser degree, but still, to some extent, they do that. Why hasn't Biden gone on, um, you know, new media outlets that are on the left? Well, because we're not water boys. Ben Shapiro is a water boy for the Republican Party. Stephen Crowder is a water boy for the Republican Party. All the right-wing new media outlets are water boys for the Republican Party. Left-wing new media, we are not water boys for the Democratic Party. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So in other words, from independent left new media, what do you get? Well, I tell you guys the truth. I tell you that the leadership of both parties, neither one of them are looking out for you at all. They're totally bought known by corporations. Now, maybe the, the degree to which they've sold out is slightly less on the Democratic side versus the Republican side, but it's still beyond what is reasonable. It's still beyond the pale and disgusting. I'm not going to pretend that the Democrats are not corrupt when they are corrupt. Sure, I agree more with Democrats on the social policies that they advocate for. That's obvious. But it's not like they're fighting for said social policies. If they were, they'd be fighting to legalize marijuana right this second. Joe Biden would be signing the executive order right this second to legalize it. So the reason why there is not a close relationship between left new media and Joe Biden or the Democrats is because I actually believe in stuff, and I don't have a loyalty to a person or a party. I have a loyalty to a policy and a principle. And so I don't, like, I don't even blame them. You get the sense in the article that they're like, well, Biden missed this opportunity. He could have done this, and it would have been beneficial and all this stuff. And it's like, well, no, I actually think the Biden administration is correct not to snuggle up to people who are left-wing new media like myself because I don't agree with him on so many things. So I'm going to be harshly critical of him. No matter what. Now, look, are there rare instances where I was the only one giving him credit or one of the few giving him credit? Yeah, the pull out of Afghanistan. I was giving him a tremendous amount of credit because he deserved it. And he was getting absolutely, you know, dragged through the ringer when it comes to mainstream media. Even the, the outlets that normally carry water for him, like MSNBC, even they were going after him. Everybody was going after him for that. I was defending him on that. But those issues are so few and far between that, like, if I'm giving him credit three or four times on three or four separate policies, but I'm disagreeing with him on on 30 policies, yeah, of course he's not going to want to snuggle up to me on that front. Now, but, but there is a deeper question, though, because that question is easy. This part is easy. Everybody knows this. This is easy. If I'm telling you both parties are corrupt and nobody's looking out for your interest, well, you know I'm trustworthy, but you also know nobody in the club is going to want to talk to me because I don't want to be in the club, and they don't want to snuggle up somebody who's going to lob bobs at them. But the deeper question is, why aren't the politicians who nominally do agree more with us why don't they come on our shows? Why don't they use our platforms? And that answer is more complicated. And I think what that answer comes down to is massive disagreement on strategy to the point where I am harshly critical of them too. So, of course, I'm talking about the squad or squad-aligned politicians. 
you know, Ro Khan is probably the one who reaches out the most and goes on most of the, uh, you know, left new media platforms. And look, to his credit, people say, like, he's one of the more honest ones. He's one of the more upfront ones. And, you know, he'll even take the hits. He came on Crystal Kyle and Friends. Crystal and I disagreed with him on a number of things. And he was willing to have the conversation. Um, but he's like one of the only ones, if not the only one at this point. The others don't like going on left new media because uh, I've also been harshly critical of them, <laughs> you know? Granted, it's more over strategy than policy because I don't doubt the sincerity of a lot of these people that they believe in the right things or many of the right things. But at the end of the day, when I look at how ineffectual they are when it comes to policy, when I look at their inability to use leverage, I look at their not willing to stick their neck out and take fire from the media when you need that in order to create change. My fundamental criticism of them is there's no leadership skills, there's no intelligent strategy, and fundamentally they're weak. And they're sort of cucked by the Democratic leadership. There's your answer on that. They, why do they want to come on the show when I think they're weak? <laughs> you know, like they want somebody to fluff them up. And that's what the new media outlets on the right do to Republican politicians. That's what mainstream outlets on the right do to Republican politicians. On the left, sure, MSNBC might oftentimes fluff up Democratic politicians, but that's not my job. That's not my job, nor should it be. You know, so there is a difference. So I don't, I don't even blame them that they don't want to come on the shows. You could say there was a time when you could blame them because it was the left new media operations that did the most to get a lot of these people elected. And before we knew how poor their strategies were, uh, they should have snuggled up more to left-wing new media and it would have been mutually beneficial and they would have had what is effectively an aggressive arm on their side. But that honeymoon period was short-lived anyway. So I actually don't blame them. I just think it's pathetic that there is nobody who really represents the principled left perspective that has any power. I mean, look, if I was elected and I cared about these things, I would go on the media shows that are aligned with um, my values and my philosophy and my policies. And, but I'm actually super committed to those policies, so I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to fear. And even if I do a strategy and it doesn't work, I'll be honest and be like, look, I tried it and it didn't work, so we've got to refocus here and re-strategize and find a new way of, of trying to achieve these things we want to achieve. But, yeah, there's, that's always been the case. And then the final point is big money. There's big money, not just behind mainstream media on the Republican side, mainstream media on the Democratic side, but there's big money behind you know, right-wing new media. There is. They have a lot of big money donors. They have a lot of support. Now, why? Because they don't threaten the status quo. They don't threaten corporate rule in this country. In fact, they support corporate rule in this country. For somebody like me, I, I don't have big donors, and I don't want big donors because that's not what I believe in. So that's why, you know, we, I've never talked to an advertiser my entire time doing this show for about a decade. Um, and Crystal Kylan Friends, for example, is all funded through small dollar donations. And this show, Patreon's a huge part of this show. Because I don't talk to any big advertisers, you guys make up the difference. It started with Adpocalypse when we got hammered for no reason with Adpocalypse. You guys pay this show $2 a month or $5 a month or whatever, $7 a month, whatever you're comfortable paying because I'd rather have the support of the base and stay true to my, my principles than take big money and feel weird sorts of pressure about having to deliver for some company. 
So that's the other part is when you actually have left new media, we're principled. We don't believe in the corporate rule. We don't believe in, you know, taking big money. And you're not going to have any friends in official places if you're, if you're basically self-ostracizing, you know, actively taking yourself out of any consideration for the club. And I, I don't want to have it any other way. I mean, don't get it wrong. If Bernie Sanders, if Bernie Sanders was president and he was fighting for all the things that he should be, and he would be, right, and he'd be signing phenomenal executive orders. Yeah, Bernie, I would hope he would come on the show because it's like we support him, we like him, he's doing the right things. And are there tiny areas where we're critical? Sure, and we'll bring them up. Um, but there would actually be an ideological agreement that is strong enough to sustain some sort of mutually beneficial relationship. But you just don't see that with other politicians. So that's why um, Democrats don't use left new media. They have a good line in this piece that said something like, Republican politicians fear their base and fear their media. Democratic politicians hate their base and hate their media. They simply don't agree with us and we don't agree with them. And the left base is much more independent-minded. We're not just going to go along to get along. We're not just going to repeat the narrative that these Democratic politicians want us to repeat. So, of course, we're not going to be snuggled up to powerful Democrats. Uh, I guess in, in this piece, since they're bringing up, like, Pod Save America, yeah, like, there are, there are Democratic apologist new media networks, and maybe those people um, have also not had close relationships with Democratic politicians, but that makes it even sadder. Like, at least the right, they're carrying water. They're being the water boys for the Republican Party, but the Republican Party returns the favor and goes on their shows and stuff. With, like, the Pod Save people and other Democratic apologists, new media networks, they're carrying water and still not even developing any relationships with the Democratic politicians, which is just sort of extra sad. So I would love an era where left new media is viewed as so powerful and so strong that Democratic politicians feel like they need to come genuflect at the altar of left new media. And because um, if that was the world we lived in, like Rush Limbaugh it, it impacted Republican politicians where they would go and bend the knee. Well, if we get powerful enough where they could do that, well, that'd be great. Because then just through sheer force of will and sheer political pressure from the number of people who support the show and support the ideas, then you could sort of shame these politicians into being better and doing better policies because they feel like, I can't cross the base of left new media. They're too strong. That would be an ideal situation. I don't know if we'll ever get there, especially not with YouTube suppression, but um, we can only try. So there you have it. They, Democrats run from left new media, and you know what? They kind of should. But it'd be nice if we could get to the point where we're so big and so powerful that they feel like they have no choice but to come cater to the audience because then you'd have much better Democratic politicians. All right, guys, we're done, baby. I love you all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.